I hope everyone clicked the button at the same time, because in case they didn't, uh, the hassle of actually lining the audio tracks up in the correct way would be would be annoying. I did have a moment where Audacity needed to confirm that it had access to my microphone because I am on a Mac. Whatever. Who cares? So we'll see. Quality Mac technology. We'll see how like, synced I actually. Uh, I, I like how Fenio always uh, like he's always whenever some the, the question of technology comes up, he talks about how good it is that Apple is making products <laughs> that are harder to repair but look better. Uh, I mean, the ca- capitalism is always bad, except when Apple makes products that just uh, break after one year of use and then contribute to massive. Uh, environmentally polluting landfills e-waste landfills Benio should also be ignored because he's a fellow staff abuser towards me and well mind you I signed off on it but he still abuses me only only Benio abuses you capitalism is responsible for the himboization of technology Okay. That is what Fenno is saying. It's, it didn't uh, contribute to the himboization of technology. In fact, it, uh, if anything, technology became more twink-like. If you look at smartphones hmm. and uh, sleek and hairless, yeah, yeah, that is where technology is going. Yeah, well, when in fact <laughs> the twinkification of tech. Yes. Steve Jobs' eternal and enduring legacy. It's uh, t- 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 technology sissy hypno is what his what his what his operation. <laughs> Uh, because everyone's sane actually advocates for easily repairable technology that is modular and more sustainable and bulkier and uh, more environmentally uh, environmentally friendly. Iggy's platform technology also has to be big and square. It has. It definitely has. Uh, yeah, I mean that's also a real problem with like farm equipment and and things too. Not even just computer stuff. Yeah, there's like, uh, I think big tech companies are lobbying for the idea that uh, it's going to be somehow harder to produce all this stuff, and the prices are going to go up. And if uh, the dumb farmer from Arkansas is gonna like start digging around in the innards of his tractor, he's going to hurt himself. Well. Uh, to the answer to this question is why don't you make a tractor that will not hurt the farmer when you start digging around in its innards? But of course, uh, it's not it's not profitable enough. This requires too much logic and not enough value capture. That is the essence of capitalism. Now you capture the value and then you blame socialists. Yes, you. you, you uh, Capitalism these days doesn't really like drive innovation as much as it drives it, it drives the innovation of ways to sell innovation under the guise of something else. Is this why you named my clean feed name Dictator Dan just so you could have a segue about capitalism <laughs> or socialism? No, I named you Dictator Dan because you are a Nazi moderator in our Discord. That's what you are. And, uh, not yet, but I can be. Mm, I still can't remember if I chose my name on clean feed or not, but I'm a big fan of it. What is it? I don't think I, I can't see it from here. It's Bane Pecker. It's a VTuber joke. Yeah. <laughs> I came, very, very important. I, I came up with all the names in here. <laughs> yeah, I wasn't I wasn't sure if it was my name or like a collective name, but I'm really pleased to know that Operation Whiskey Sour is my name. 
<laughs> and speaks to my prime directive. I'm glad to know that Tuman has learned enough about VTubers that he chose the one with the war crimes as the alias joke I get. Fantastic. <laughs> <laughs> like that's a shout out to <laughs> that's a shout out to every conversation we've ever had about drones and burger friends where people are like what kind of horrible monster would ever be associated with the use of drones in warfare you would have to be a morally bankrupt person to ever be supported by drones or launch a drone strike or use them i'm sitting there in the chat like gee thanks guys feels real fucking good to be in here right now for a bunch of 15 year olds that haven't even fired a gun fuck me <laughs> <laughs> did you did you uh we were talking about babies prior to starting the recording did you did you ever uh, had to kick a baby into into onto a grenade okay, to we, save we, your we, life we, hold on hold on we don't we don't need to go this direction why why not Probably one of, one of my favorite and most in one, one of my favorite and most catering to <laughs> oh he'll cut this bit out don't be a coward so this is the world's first and foremost <laughs> pro drone warfare mma podcast we need to act as such Oh dear. Welcome to Drone Town. <laughs> Welcome to Drone Town. <laughs> and just the, the 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 joke, the joke that we continually bring up like every second episode is the one time that Tuman had to raid an enemy encampment and kicked a, a grenade into an orphanage full of children. Yeah. You know, like <laughs> some, they, yeah. because sometimes you need to learn how to multitask. <laughs> that's why they call me Tuman. I was about to say that's why they call you two drones. Oh my god. Oh my god! This is that's be why a they call me Tuman. I can both hit the hit the button on the drone to to start the drone strike and also kick a baby down down. We down get it. Stairs. You're special. Yes, he, he has the capability of two men. This is normally I think, the need, greatest thing I've accomplished. Yeah, no, n- normally you need a squad to do this, but uh, or, or at least a two man team. I don't need a whole squad. I just need oh. two men. Two. So far, we've managed men. to fit in. So far, we've managed to fit in like three genocide man jokes, which makes me so happy because nobody knows the comic exists, but it's hysterically funny. I mean, <laughs> every time I hop onto a podcast or like, for example, the MMA podcast, uh, Ed always dreads the moment where I start making uh, ethnic cleansing jokes. <laughs> and I'm allowed to do those jokes because I actually live in a regime that uh, likes ethnic cleansing. And I live near I'm, I'm a amazed regime you don't that just... likes ethnic cleansing. I'm amazed you haven't just doubled down on it and said, come on, Ed, we all know you Americans have your own version. It's called exclusionary single-family zoning. And just watch Ed's head explode. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and I mean... Not only that, we could also talk about skyscrapers and uh, places like uh, the uh, Burj Khalifa uh, tower in the United Arab Emirates and how it's not actually connected to the sewer system. And they have uh, like they have uh, um, a schedule like on a schedule, they have trucks running through the building to pick up enormous tanks. Enormous tanks filled with liquidized human shit because it's not connected to the sewer system. But it's uh, it's the biggest, it's the, it's the brightest achievement of uh, the modern of uh, modern civilization. The, the tallest Petition tower. Petition to the remake the movie uh, Speed, but with the big giant shit trucks. Yes, exactly. <laughs> and uh, also, Mission Impossible should have been about uh, uh, Tom Cruise trying to, like. Uh, the, uh, trying to get to trying to climb up the tower from the outside to get to the 
primary truck driver who controls the uh, outpouring of shit that uh, goes around the United Arab Emirates. <laughs> I feel like Keanu would so totally act in that movie. Mission. Yeah, that's uh, th- 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 that's why they call it the dirty bomb. <clears throat> I actually don't remember what the movie actually was about. I think it was about uh, an insane Scandinavian scientist uh, thinking that starting nuclear war will cleanse humanity or something. Something like that. Well, we've managed to write the plot for half of the, you know, Command and Conquer Generals 2, if it ever gets made. Well done, people. What a brainstorming session. And, yeah, the kicker will be is that... uh, The kicker is that it's not the GLI who's going to use the dirty bomb. It's gonna be, it's gonna be the protagonist who is. Uh, what, what's the equivalent of GDI in the the generals games? I forgot. There isn't really one because like America is kind of portrayed as being a bit more isolationist, insane, amusingly. <laughs> uh, like China, China inv- uh, invades. Well, not invades. Kind of takes over Europe and half colonizes it, and then realizes that's a really bad idea in the second game that they cancel because <laughs> China's like, oh god, we have no idea how to run a multi-ethnic pluriparty diplomacy. Ah. Well, I mean, true. They don't know how to do it in real life as well. Something about kicking babies and grenades, probably. <laughs> I mean that's that that's essentially the equivalent of the uh, approach to all problems. Basically, just kick a grenade on oh, top dear. of it. Well, we're getting banned from certain figures on Twitter. The block is going to be going up. Oh. Look on the bright side. We've got eight minutes for Timon to realise that this was a catastrophic mismanagement. And everyone's got their settings wrong. It'd be fantastic. Oh. I will say that I am recording, and honestly, I don't think we could have asked much more from me at this juncture. So, a roaring success on that axis. I mean, at least, like, unlike most uh, beginner podcasters, you've actually learned how to click the red button. The reason why there aren't as many podcasts as there is now. Like all idiots, I'm magnetically attracted to a red button. (laughs) I mean, yeah. Shout shout out to the HH people who still haven't replied to our suggestion to use Audacity, which confirmed. Press it. (laughs) Oh, wow. Hey, Sivvy. I didn't know you were making a guest appearance. (laughs) Don't press that button. Press it. Don't press it. Part five. Booby trap the stalemate button. This should That's be, who this we should actually be remixed need. into an absolutely fire Chemical Brothers song. Oh, uh, we we need Sivvy to make a guest appearance on Tangri Dome one day. Like we need Sivvy <laughs> to do it. Just pay like like just crowdfund eighty thousand dollars and get Steph and Wait to make a guest appearance and Sivvy will follow. <laughs> you won't even need to invite him, he'll just be here. Uh, <laughs> I mean <clears throat> if uh the problem with inviting Sylvie is that she always has this guy. No, no, no. We're, we're not talking about we're we're not talking about Sylvie. We're talking about a YouTuber hacks and I watch. Oh Jesus! He he covers boomer shooter games and he is even <laughs> he's amazing. He man- his voice sounds even more like I've checked out of life and hate everything than Dan does after a shift. I'm, so it's impressive. If you're into boomer shooters. I presume you'd have to detach yourself from reality at this point to maintain yeah, so sanity. And he covers some weird fucking games too. So and just his play cruelty squad, Dan. Play cruelty squad. Play cruelty squad. You should play <laughs> cruelty squad. What, 
Don't tell me what to do. I have to play my bullshit anime <laughs> games first. I'm telling you what to do because you're going to regret not doing it earlier when you actually play it. What do you mean I'm going to regret not doing it? What the hell does that mean? You're going to play Cruel Discord and you're going to be like, I should have played this the day it came out. This is incredible. My life is divided into two sections before and after playing Cruel Discord. Jesus. But yeah. <laughs> Uh, I don't want to play Cruelty you know, like, uh, what's, what's especially funny about the thing that Hacks mentioned, I basically like explained how the Heavy Hands boys can fix their own audio issues and all the connectivity issues that they have, and uh, neither of them have read my messages because they never re read their messages, and it's probably going to be the reason why Heavy Hands is going to continue having shit audio quality moving forward. Uh, <laughs> That's probably the real reason that they like some of the people were intimidated by you. They heard somebody in high definition for the first time and couldn't process it. <laughs> yeah, that's why. My God, his voice is so clear and sharp. That's why they actually had to move to Skype, not because the Discord crashed on Connor's end, or in, and not because his power supply failed during the recording multiple times, <laughs> but because they were intimidating by the clarity of my voice and my mic. Wait, they, yeah, they, moving he to doesn't Skype even have is a, your high-tech tech solution. Wait, he doesn't even have a fucking, like a, a PSU he, set up, like a backup? No, he doesn't have a backup PSU, and the one he has is like, I don't know, 12, 20 years old at this point. And he doesn't already. have a surge protector, or like... Neither of those things. <laughs> right, so basically it's a miracle that he hasn't gotten cancer by, like, licking dioxins off a fucking electrical box on the road and died or something. Pretty much, yes. But, uh, I mean, I, I mean, half the reason why he's into MMA, I think, is predicated on the fact that he is poisoned right now as of this juncture. <laughs> <laughs> he's just spent his whole life licking dioxins, and now it's finally getting to him. Oh, yeah, you know, like, and he, he's like, oh, I'm going to watch MMA. That's a great idea. But, yeah, uh, I, I, if anyone is still listening to this mess and uh, wondering who the fuck all these people are, welcome to Tengridome episode... Wait, hang on. It's, uh, I think it's 18. No, 18 uh, is, uh, is... It's 18 or 19. 18 is the episode that I've recorded with Naked Quarry the other day. It's going to be... Gonna, it's 19. It's going to be up on... So, so 19, we're going to cut everything before this point just to save our sanity. Yes, please cut everything before this point and then make it exclusive on Patreon. Except for Drone Town. <laughs> should, should I, should, I, I, I feel like we shouldn't cut it. I think it adds a lot... A lot of character to the to the uh, nature of this recording and all that. You guys are just cowards. Uh, I never cut it. Adds a lot else. of reasons for people to block us on Twitter. That's <laughs> what I was saying, but nobody ever listens to me, the lone source of reason and cowardice on this team. We talked I said, about fuck how it, leave it all in unedited. We talked. I want Drone Town. I want the shit trucks. I want it all. We talked about how <laughs> capitalism is bad, oh, shit, and is the shit reason town, behind, that's a great podcast. And is the reason behind the shit trucks and uh, the drones and the babies. And grenades. We are never gonna get done with this fucking podcast if you keep talking about <laughs> fucking droids and kicking babies down a shaft. Can we move Droids on? that kick babies? It's actually a good Star Wars Clone Wars idea. <laughs> Imagine if General Grievous only used his limbs to punt babies. 
That's actually the the voice that like um fucking you know Pedro Pascal's character hears in the Mandalorian. It's just the voice whispering, "Kick the child, kick the child." It's it's like it's gonna be. I'm gonna come up with an episode of uh, Star Wars Clone Wars where General Grievous invades uh, uh, the Kreshi. I think that's what it's called, the Jedi Temple, like nursery. And uh, Anakin is gonna be uh, like Obi Wan is gonna be like, oh no, he's chucking the younglings, and Anakin is like extremely torn. Finally, some competition. Uh, and, uh, yes, and Anakin is like <laughs> extremely torn. Like, should, should he, should he, should he prevent General Grievous from kicking the babies? <laughs> and uh, it's gonna be like a, a really like subtle foreshadowing to when Anakin falls off the mm. deep end and becomes Darth Vader. It's actually extremely compelling storytelling. But yeah, uh, eat the child. Yeah, speaking about eating babies and kicking children, this is uh, once again you're listening to Tangerine Dome episode eight nineteen. I, uh, uh, I was thinking about ways how to how I could combine eighteen and nineteen into into one word to make it sound funny. But uh, either way, uh, today we assembled this uh, crack team. <laughs> to to talk about not actually about kicking babies but i mean in a in a sense it is about kicking babies because we're going to talk about how we can convey uh and communicate analytical concepts uh to fighters and the broader mma audience like uh to i guess establish the problem well first of all i am today i'm joined uh, in case you had noticed by hacks and dan as uh, who are pretty much regulars uh, on the podcast at this point, uh, and we're also joined by a special guest, and uh, who is in fact having her podcasting debut. Congratulations, uh, operator! You. It's a pleasure to be here. Congratulations, Operation Whiskey Sour. Uh, in fact, I think this is what's uh, what I'm what uh, should be the alternate title for this podcast. But either way, uh, how are you guys doing? Yeah. Well, Operation Success on my end, I've been drinking, so so all is well. I mean, I guess that expl- explains all the banter. We have an excuse now, kind of like Joan Jones or Paul Acosta. I don't need an excuse. I mean, no one needs an excuse to start drinking. Hex, how's it, how's it going? Did, uh, did, uh, did the Australian government kill itself yet? Well... <clears throat> So, you know, the wonderful contagion that is COVID has managed to get into Indigenous communities in New South Wales. And because Indigenous Australians have a proportionately lower rate of access to healthcare services and a proportionately higher rate of uh, lasting, shall we say, contagions of a cardiovascular or respiratory nature, uh, shit's pretty fucked, man. Did, did, did Bruz did anything at all about it, or does he does he like did he fuck off somewhere already, talking about how oh. he's protecting the bush, mate? That would that would involve him actually doing something. So I think the answer is a strong no. Uh, I guess I'm looking forward to the next chapter in the friendly Geordies saga that he has going. So there you go. Shout out friendly Geordies, even though he never listens to this shit and will will never listen because he has much bigger things on his plate. Uh, Dan, dictator Dan, how's that? How's the ethnic cleansing going? 
what do you think? I want to cleanse everyone who keeps bothering me about Adderall every fucking day. We can't get your fucking Adderall in outside of the 30 days. It is a national health policy, and we can't send it out of town literally the day you're leaving. It's a pain in the fucking ass. Leave me alone. Classic dictatorial position. Yeah. Also, moreover, her... I am reconsidering my stances on censorship as of the last 20 minutes because of all the slander that has been sent my direction. I mean, you can't do nothing. I'm the dictator of That's this true. whole operation. I'm the dictator. Oh, so the dictator name was ironic. I see where we're going with this. No, I wasn't going any anywhere with it. It wasn't ironic. You're gonna, well, yeah, you're of course we're not going anywhere. We've wasted 20 fucking minutes getting to the point. I mean, did we waste them? I think we've them? enhanced 20 fucking minutes. Oh, jeez. Did we waste them, really? I mean... Alright, so, uh, the, the topic of today's discussion, as I was saying, is con conveying analytical concepts to the broader MMA audience and, like, establishing communications between fight analysts and everyone else. And the thing is, uh, the thing is, the problem that I've stumbled upon, uh, that I've noticed is, uh, that, uh, the fight site and other analysts frequently run into, a, uh, the problem where the analytical concepts uh, where we wish to convey, go through, like, this game of broken telephone. Immediate listeners tend to skim over certain points and tend to condense the ideas presented to them to such an extent where it becomes, for lack of a better word, dumbed down. Where, like, say, someone like, wants the, the like, on heavy hands, Phil McKenzie and uh, Conor Rebush may talk about how MMA fighters, how... A particular MMA fighter may have problems in certain areas of the game. Uh, an immediate listener will go on Twitter and then say, Oh, oh my God, what a great episode. You've nailed uh, such and such points where the fighter in question actually sucks. And he may not suck in those areas in particular. He may just be lacking a certain tool or certain nuance that would uh, bring his uh, overall game to a new level. And so there you have... Oh, there, there already you have a breakdown in communications. And then another guy hops in for the convo and starts arguing with the listener and then starts arguing with uh, uh, Connery Bush and uh, Filmer Kenzie uh, about whether, whether or not they were right in the first place and uh, without ever having listened to the actual podcast. And so, uh, and so on and so on and so on. It goes and goes and goes and it uh, turns into the complete mess that we call the MMA community right now. This is the state in which the MMA community currently resides. <laughs> and uh, I've uh, assembled this crack team not to kick babies, in fact, and uh, explode uh, nurseries, but to talk about this problem and uh, maybe, perhaps, in the course of this discussion, come up with something come up with certain ways to, I guess, alleviate the problem. And uh, to start with, I would say, let's start with uh, Operator, who is because it's her debut, and it's because I think he, she has uh, lots of stuff to say about this issue. And uh, I think to start with, we should, uh, first of all, to outline the primary reasons for this issue. Operator, take it away. Yeah, so... I mean, this is obviously a big question, and with all big questions, I think we have to kind of break it down into a bunch of sub-questions that we need to figure out how we want to answer. So, I mean, as you said, one of the problems with kind of conveying communication is that it gets filtered through 
layers of like it's like a game of telephone right you know it gets passed through like through twitter or through whatever you know through, through the discord and through several layers and then there's this telephone like quality where the information gets degraded um, but before we even get to that problem there's a bunch of potential pitfalls kind of at the zeroth order level which is you know how can analysts communicate most effectively to the fans that are say listening to the primary source like listening to the podcast or reading the article directly or Hang on, another zero with order stage is yeah Dan, go. for fuck's sake stop typing <laughs> or at least mute yourself <laughs> oh it wasn't then it was hacks i was not typing oh i wasn't typing like i straight up wasn't typing I'm just playing around with the mute button. Um... Okay, okay. Yeah, sure, all right. Anyway, (laughs) as you were. (laughs) And the other kind of zero with order stage um, would be uh, how can coaches communicate with... Hacks, for fuck's (laughs) sake! (laughs) Uh, This man uh... is ostensibly a middle-aged person. He is an adult. (laughs) I think. And I think this this is one more. This is just what happens when you assemble this austere brain trust of yeah. highly functioning individuals. Actually, uh, hang on. While, while we're at it, I think I forgot to actually allow you to introduce yourself properly and talk about what you what you do for a living and uh, how, um, how how your skill set yeah. is actually pertinent yeah. to this issue. <laughs> yeah, who the fuck am I? Uh, yeah, so I'm an MMA fan, but I think the reason that I was uh, assembled onto this, this crack team of experts is because my day job is a university professor in a scientific field. Hmm. Um, and most of my career life so far has been in the area of research, so I'll probably have a lot more to say about this topic kind of later on as I get more into the weeds of teaching and arguing with my colleagues about best practices for actually teaching science. Um, but that that's my background. It's very much thinking about how to um, mentor students and teach large classrooms, so kind of at the individual and group level alike, you know, how to convey high-level abstract concepts um, in a digestible and clear way. So basically you've added another reason why uh, any passing MMA fan should just turn this off right away because... <laughs> <laughs> I mean, but on the yeah. other hand, I'm a woman, so that could be very exciting to the average MMA fan. Well, one of two things: That's e- the hook. either it's going to be extre- extremely exciting and the potential for further simpage, or the complete opposite. <laughs> Precisely because you're a this, woman. This could go one of two ways, and and it's even odds. Um, That's why they call me two men. I can do both at the same time. Get you a man <laughs> that can be two men. Um, but yeah, uh, back to uh, conveying concepts and stuff. The actual yeah, topic yeah, so, of this um, discussion. <laughs> yeah, so I mean, like I said, so I was just saying this is a big problem with like a lot of potential failure modes and a lot of points at which we can attack the question. But um, I guess most helpful would be to start kind of at the basic kind of first chain in the supply chain of like information, which is, you know, how can coaches talk to their fighters and how can, or how can analysts actually convey to the audience that are digesting the primary sources, listening to the podcasts or reading the articles. Um, 
Yeah, and I feel like I've already been rambling, but um, I'm happy to swing back to this. I think Hex is playing an RTS right there in the background. Either that, or he's just doing this on purpose. <laughs> what? <laughs> I can hear every, you every, every, pod, every podcast requires a challenge, and mine is keeping a train of thought on a ridiculously long-winded rant while Hax frantically clicks <laughs> in the background. How is that even fucking audible? What the hell? This is why uh, Dictator Dan won't, this, won't let us have more Adderall. This is all, this is all staying in, by the way. I'm not going to edit this mess. I'm, fuck this. I already spent... Bless I'm genuinely confused that that's audible. Mess. What the hell? Is it less oh, audible it's, now? it's tremendously audible. It's audacity. <laughs> uh, uh, it's actually not audible at the moment. Because, he, because he fucking muted himself. Of course it's not going to be audi audible. <laughs> Classic. <laughs> oh, for fuck's sake. All right. Uh, anyway, yeah, that, that was my intro spiel. But I feel like we should uh, kick it around and then I can rant more. So, yeah. Uh, Okay, um, Dan, you wrote, uh, like, three pages of fucking notes prior to this, and so you... I, I'm assuming okay. you have a lot of to say about yeah. it, how to start breaking so, down this issue, how we can so, start. Sure, so I think you all have to start at kind of the perspective of um, a, a bit of a... Why is it people do enjoy or like to watch combat sports? And I think it's because it offers a different medium than traditional sports. For one thing, it's more built around like principles of kind of engagement and kind of spectacle as opposed to other ball sports out there. But those other sports in general tend to be a lot more accessible to just the average viewers or just participants because, well, for one thing, they're not nearly as quote-unquote violent in the typical ways that something like MMA is, and they don't have like direct like visceral or like visual consequences. But that also leads to MMA itself being a more unique and controversial kind of subject matter. So what happens is, as a result, you get a fan base that is going to be very prone to what I call narrativisms. And narrativisms are basically the idea of, okay, we establish this kind of idea, and it is the principal um, dominant kind of viewpoint behind this. And narratives are very easy to do because they exist in everything. They exist in politics. They exist in academia. They exist in basic social interactions. Narratives are easy. They're fun. They're pretty useful in general, but they can also be really problematic. And part of the issue is, in regards to MMA specifically, it is a sport that is riddled with narratives and it's because it is a combat sport that is driven by the idea of, like, rankings and who is the best. And so most discussions you're going to see end up being like, oh, who beats who? Who's the best? And it becomes less about how it works and how fighters work to incorporate their, their games to be the best as opposed to just who's the best and, like, oh, oh, why? And you'll have kind of that dominant promotion, the UFC, who can basically push whatever – agenda at once because it kind of holds a borderline monopoly over just most of the sport in general and media uh, because in MMA's media um, kind of niche there isn't really a lot of investigative journalism and whatnot so that leads to even less informed fans or people willing to stand up for quote-unquote like against those narratives but it, there's a lot to it but the gist of it is um, the, the main issue is that people just aren't informed 
and they're not exactly looking to be informed, partially due to that lack of accessibility, but also due to just partially laziness, but also just lack of initiative or know how to take that initiative. It kind of reminds me a bit um, in that sense of American football, um, which also I think has kind of two broad classes of fans. Like there are the people that just want to like tailgate at a football game or watch the Super Bowl casually or whatever and want the spectacle and don't really care. And then there's the subset of fans that is like, well, you know, well, actually, American football is a really great and intricate game and you have to understand um, like how the coaches map out the plays and, and blah, blah, blah. And, and it's a real question of which half of that fan base are you trying to cater to? Um, are you trying to find an effective way to capture the, uh, the interest of the tailgating fans? Or are you trying to figure out uh, the best way to um, <coughs> express content to and communicate with uh, you know, the, the fans that want to dissect the game? Yeah, uh, and the MMA community has uh, grown quite a bit over the last few years, with several big-name fighters arguably being able to go mainstream and become stars. And, like, it's normal for fans of any type of entertainment media or sport to maintain a certain distance from something they like. It's a form of entertainment they enjoy uh, during their free time, and that's it. Uh, however, we've seen many examples of uh, bona fide cultish behavior from casual fans in recent years and uh, the rise of online mass communications that started in the 90s and the continued integration of the internet in our daily life led to a certain proliferation of uh, parasocial relationships, I think. Like, people tie their identity to music artists, movie art actors and sports figures, brands, TV shows, video games, you name it. And fighters aren't an exception in, in this case. And uh, it's not a new phenomenon. Obsessive fans can be found in any time period in one way or another, but nevertheless, it's become increasingly apparent that uh, the internet makes that phenomenon more visible and seemingly more potent. Like, normally what separates a hardcore fan from a casual fan is the amount of knowledge they have and uh, were able to accumulate over the years and deeper understanding of the type of media they enjoy. But the drastically improved access of inf to information makes the conversion process from a casual fan to a hardcore quote-unquote fan in the traditional sense much quicker. What's interesting, though, is uh, it's been hypothesized or assumed by many that increased access to information would mean that people will become more educated on a variety of different topics and their willingness to deepen their knowledge will increase. And what actually happens is that the overabundance of, of uh, information means many people are threatened with uh, information burnout. Like past a th certain point, the info noise becomes too much. And as such, it created an atmosphere in which instant gratification is what drives the majority of people instead. People seek ex to experience as many strong emo emotions typically associated with uh, media interaction as possible in as uh, short an amount of time as possible. And uh, as such... We've seen a noticeable increase of MMA fans who do not seek to improve their knowledge of the sport and do not seek to evaluate the sport critically or analytically. And what we have instead is thousands of incredibly vocal fans who possess minimal knowledge of the sport but are nonetheless extremely passionate. What's more important, however, is that they are extremely fickle and easy to sway with marketing strategies or promotional campaigns and all narratives, in, uh, comment, be it commentary or uh, stuff like the UFC's embedded series and the, the video logs uh, and uh, posts that fighters themselves or their teams make uh, on social media. But one one thing I want to point out as well um, is that 
Despite the fact that uh, I I think our side is looking to try to change kind of like in an uphill battle, trying to like bring that more analytical awareness side, it doesn't mean we're ever going to say to someone that you have to enjoy the sport differently. It's more so, hey, here's another reason to like this sport or appreciate the participants, how to have empathy for them. If people want to watch it just because they like seeing people punch each other really hard, then by all means. But that's kind of the goal that um, our kind of community is looking to build. We want to establish like these principles of just this is how this works and this is why you can respect it more than you might already do. This is how you see the humans and like the kind of like scientific sides to it as well. Yeah, like uh, there is a a certain degree of uh, uh, anti-intellectualism in MMA, I think, in the current MMA community. Like, there's this idea of analysts as, as uh, uh, quote-unquote gatekeepers or ruiners. Like, there's a very real segment of the MMA fan base where analysts tend to be painted as joyless bricks who are only in this to show off how big their brain is without regard for the reasons why other people may have gotten into this sport. Sentiments like, no one thinks about the shit mid-fight, you guys are just grifters, even though fighters, uh, even though the things that they do achieve the things that analysts outline. It's just that uh, they don't think about, they don't quite frame the things they do in the same way that analysts do. It's just something that uh, their coaches thought up prior to the fight during the course of their training. Or that uh, like uh, analysts should just uh, lay off uh, certain fighters or certain fights and just enjoy the show, <laughs> even though, even though uh, the quality of uh, of fighters' skill sets is directly affects one's enjoyment of the fight. So, <laughs> if the fight is dog shit, and if the fighters quite frankly suck at what they do, it's not going to make for for good entertainment, you know. But uh, you know, it's it's something we can get. Uh, it's something we can talk about all day, and so I think uh, I guess we should uh, uh, go about our, uh, actually trying to uh, break down the primary reasons for the issues that we're facing, with, which I think we kind of like veered a bit to the side, which is I guess the theme of today's recording. But so uh, I think Hacks had uh, something to offer on how to break down this issue. Uh, in the conversation prior to the recording, Hex? Well, I mean, maybe to point to some framing before we go into that discussion, because I think it's important. The first thing that often gets mentioned is that MMA is a baby sport. It's young. It's new. There's a lot of, um, I suppose for lack of a better word, version, what we might call conventional wisdom in other sports, or like, let's put it in quotation marks, Um basic knowledge of the sport that everybody understands because it's just been repeated so many times by players, by coaches, by teams, by fans, by even players that it's kind of become a cultural trope. So, you know, like an example in, um, you know, baseball, uh, Tim and I have had some side discussions about this. There are certain statistics, so there are certain indicators of a player's quality where even somebody who may not follow baseball in an intellectual concept would probably still be able to roughly explain what it means, something like on-base percentage. MMA doesn't really have the depth or complexity or even the 
generations in terms of how long it's been around for people to have those kind of cultural tropes or ideas. Like, you know, when somebody in baseball says he gets on base or he has a batting average, there's a bunch of different assessments and inbuilt variations and understandings of that player that are kind of built into that phrase, where even the most casual baseball enjoyer kind of is getting across some information that has intellectual value. I don't think we really have that kind of um, level of MMA yet. The closest thing we have is probably strike count, as many people have pointed out. That's essentially two 40-year-old dudes mashing buttons when one guy hits another man from the side of the ring. So I would say that's one reason why this conversation is very difficult to pull off. The second thing I would point out is that, and I think this is something that uh, Kareem Zidane has made very clear, the UFC has certainly attached itself to movements of a certain intellectual nature that are actively anti-intellectual. There are political figures, there are um, groups, there are camps that really don't want us to think about MMA in a way that may involve some degree of intellectual analysis or process or even for lack of a better word, here's my philosophy and how I break down and I analyze mixed martial arts. So the UFC itself, I think, has become a powerful force in incentivizing and encouraging its fan base to uh, to reword an old Apple phrase, uh, instead of think different, think dumber. And I think that uh, that is a component that a lot of people seem very curious to overlook. The third element I'd add is that um, there doesn't seem to, even to today, to be a very high level of understanding of mixed martial arts' as rules and how they influence everything from judge decisions to the way fighters fight. One thing that has always frustrated me in both boxing and mixed martial arts discourse when I read it on the Twitter is that people do not seem to appreciate the tremendous impact that the rules of a sport have on everything from the value that coaches and teams and preparation attach to specific elements in that sport to the decisions that fighters make in the middle of a fight. How are we supposed to explain analytical concepts with precision if we don't even as a sport have a concrete understanding of what half the fucking rules mean or that a different understanding or interpretation of what those rules mean is going to change the way fighters fight. A lot of fighters, a lot of camps, a lot of judges, a lot of commentators still seem to think just getting a takedown should help you win the round, even though the rules explicitly say it shouldn't. How do you communicate analysis based on the rules that knows that's not true to a population or a group that still thinks it's true? These are difficult questions before you even get to what is the process of explaining analysis. Yeah, and uh, like media conglomerates aren't stupid. They see what is happening and adapt to it to continue their growth in the industry. Like uh, WME IMG uh, or Endeavor is a talent agency and it's a pretty damn big one, one of the largest in the US. And uh, Endeavor owns the UFC and they saw the kind of profit figures like Ronda Rousey and Conor McGregor were able to bring. And the UFC frequently manipulates and actively seeks out narratives that might prove profitable. It doesn't really matter whether using real-life situations for those narratives is uh, morally or ethically acceptable. I think, uh, as Tommy had said on a uh, on an episode way, way back, uh, the UFC is not amoral, but it is uh, very distinctly uh, immoral. Or rather, 
it's not immoral but amoral whatever which whichever one is more correct <laughs> but yeah uh, it's not immoral but amoral yeah, yeah 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 that was it so yeah so for example conor mcgregor throwing a dolly at a bus and injuring fellow fighters was used in the build-up for mcgregor versus uh, Nurmagomedov, as well as his uh, uh distinctly islamophobic and uh, race-baiting uh, rhetoric was used in the build-up to this fight. Colby Covington gives uh, gets uh, put front and center whenever he's uh, there to hype up uh, the potential Usman rematch. And uh, Walt Harris's tragic loss of his daughter was put in the promotional package to hype, to hype up his fight against Alistair Overeem. This is what we are operating with here. But and also like this misunderstanding of the rules, as uh, Hex pointed out. Uh, this misunderstanding of the rules actually affects the sports on all levels and you can see how certain camps may train their fighters to fight in a way that is uh, uh, doesn't contribute to actually winning the fights according to the actual rules they some fighters still fight as if uh, securing uh, meaningless takedowns or trying to grind it out on the cage is gonna net them the win in the end down the stretch even though According to the rules, it won't. But since the judges actually do not seem to understand the criteria very well, it still happens. Fighters like this still are still essentially encouraged to continue fighting like this in this subpass, uh, less than effective fashion. But yeah, and to amplify like a different part of what Hack said, I mean, basically, to it's difficult to um, communicate with a casual fan precisely because there isn't a simple set of best practices in the sport yet that we can point to as kind of signposts to get relatively casual fans oriented to what's going on. And another thing that I think MMA suffers from in contrast to a lot of other popular sports um, is basically that people don't, you know, in, in gym class, we all are forced at some point to play basketball or soccer or whatever else. And this kind of hands-on active participation in something is really important generally to conceptualizing and learning something. I mean, in, in science, you know, the students have to solve problems. You know, they have to create their own mental model or mental edifice of the basic structure that they're trying to learn to get to start to get an actual intuitive sense for what's going on, what are the parameters, what are the possibilities. You know, we get a lot of that in childhood with a whole suite of um, of other sports, but plenty of MMA fans don't necessarily have any kind of basic traditional martial arts experience, let alone any kind of, of um, MMA training. And that's a real impediment, I think, to getting people to grasp or, or to kind of hold on to um, a lot of concepts that that one wants to convey to them. Yeah. So there's something. Um, th there's something I have to add to that. Um, part of um, if you work in the educational field, like I think maybe a few of us uh, subtly might have hinted at that we'd have. Um, the thing is that you discover a lot of people learn differently and apply like basic sets of what they learn to like different subsets of knowledge or activities differently. <laughs> so. In school, typically, um, if you're teaching different kinds of students, you learn that they will learn something a little differently. For instance, like some kids will learn better just visually through visual examples. Some will learn better through just audio, like being told things. Some will learn better by doing. And those kinds of things are important when you're working in an educational or 
kind of informative environment to be able to account for to reach as many people as possible to ensure that they understand something the most. And kind of the problem, though, for instance, with, um, as Hax has touched upon, like, commentators not knowing the rules, you were having people who were commentating by the age, they're supposed to be the experts, and when they don't know the rules, or when they're focusing on the things that don't really matter, or intentionally misdirecting the viewers and contradicting those several things that hurts like a viewer's ability to really appreciate or understand what's going on but there's also the cases of um say what's visually going on again people don't typically i think watch mma or most combat sports to really learn what's happening so they're not necessarily inclined to look for that they're not like engaging that side of their brain where it's like hey i want to understand what's happening they're kind of just engaging it more react as opposed to being kind of proactive about it but and they don't have to necessarily do that but there is a benefit to it yeah so in essence what uh, i think we can all conclude is that uh in t- up to a certain point this issue is uh, pretty much unavoidable and uh this uh, pr- pretty much brings us to the reason for why we are having this uh, conversation like if the issue is unavoidable how what can we do to curtail it uh, or at least uh, limit the extent uh, through which uh, li- the, limit the extent of this spread of misinformation by putting out actual uh, measured nuanced analytical content that will have some sort of degree of weight where do you start i think i'd go back to something uh, operator talked about so say There's different layers or channels of information between you, the person making the point, and the person receiving your point. So let's say uh, the first channel is obviously your brain to whatever format you choose to pass on information. So, okay, so let's use you as an example, Tuman. You record a podcast. You have some thoughts in your brain. Those thoughts are probably going to be filtered by the fact that you now have to communicate using words, especially if you may not be using you know a language that you're as comfortable with and that doesn't just mean oh you might be speaking in a literal different language it might mean you're using terminology that's different whatever whatever you know i suspect you'd probably feel a tiny bit less confident doing a purely muay thai or brazilian jiu-jitsu breakdown than you would be about punching dudes in the face so that's the first way and, and you know as you continue to go down the levels then you've got what about the possibility of information being lost or, lost or misunderstood? Because the other person doesn't have the technical ability to understand what you're saying. What happens if the person that heard that then relays some of the information that you've relayed to them to a third person? You can kind of get this game of telephone or Chinese whispers where things are breaking down at every stage. And by the time the information that you have uh, relayed to somebody has got so much signal noise in it, it doesn't really reflect what you said at the start. I think the first way to help reduce this kind of, I don't know, natural decay, if you like, or this natural entropy of communication is to have a clear set of principles right back where you started so that if somebody tries to follow this chain down, so let's say a Discord patron is poorly repeating an argument that you originally made that is repeated by another Discord patron and they start following it all the way back up to the chain to the original podcast, if you have a clear set of ideas or principles 
rationales or analytics or a rationale behind why you did the podcast in the first place, like a value statement also for a company. I know a lot of uh, younger people like to view those with some scorn and derision, um, the type of people that are Redditors that have never actually worked in a company. Those types of clear statements of values are actually a really powerful way of establishing a baseline series of motivators. Or to um, maybe put it another way, so let's use an actual The Fight Side example. So Ed has kind of been pushing a project where he's gone through the rules with various other The Fight Side people and has said, these are the rules of mixed martial arts. Here is what they mean. Here is what we believe they mean. And this understanding of what the rules of mixed martial arts mean is the guideline by which we analyze fights. So if we look at an Aldo fight and we see things that Aldo is doing in the fight, how effective they are, we are going to try and measure and track by how well they reflect Aldo fulfilling the rules of meaningful accomplishments in mixed martial arts fights. So if you kind of think about that, there's a kind of intellectual bracing or a foundation for hopefully everything that the fight side does, which is keyed back to the fundamental rules of mixed martial arts and how we interpret them. So no matter what you think of the fight side article on mixed martial arts, when you chase that back up the chain all the way, in theory, what we're saying, what we're doing, the points we're making, the breakdowns we're providing are informed by what is effective, what is successful, what matters according to the rules. So even if you may not understand an article or a point or a breakdown, at least you know on some level, or at least you can have some confidence on some level, hey, these guys are saying that this takedown or these constant takedowns from this fighter are not effective because they believe they do not score or put the fighter in a position to score and not scoring is bad because it doesn't get you any points in the rules which means that you're not more likely to win the fight so at least there's a kind of way of if you have um, noise or data loss from you portraying your opinion to people by having a set of concrete principles behind your analysis, people can kind of rebuild what you're saying in the opposite direction by going back to the ideas, the principles and the methodology behind what you're actually saying. Yeah, and uh, to sort of even go beyond the rules, it's been frequently pointed out that the rules are not perfect. No rule set is pretty much perfect. Like, uh, I don't think there's a sport on earth where there's a rule set that doesn't allow for some sort of gaps or, uh, or like, um, loopholes. And, but, uh, in, in such cases, there is, uh, an opportunity for us to sort of fall back on the fundamentals of fighting as something that we can use. We can study. I mean, and this is mixed martial arts, and uh, by definition, it takes techniques from other more well-established sports, which you can then study to learn how the, the elements of those sports work within the context of uh, the rule set of mixed martial arts. And that's how you can start gauging the effectiveness, which uh, the effectiveness of the individual techniques that uh, the fighters are using, because many people talk about how the criteria of damage is too subjective or that uh, judging fighters and judging how fighters are able to fight effectively is too subjective. It depends from person to person. But I mean, I think Dan had something to uh, offer on this uh, particular uh, counter argument. 
Yeah, so the whole thing, um, I've had people before kind of ask me, like, so how exactly do you find analysis stuff? How do you learn to be analytical and whatnot, specifically with MMA? And I said on a previous podcast, there's a couple of things you need with caveats. Like, you need to be able to draw from references. I think Hax has already done a good job really, like, kind of outlining this, but it's kind of like... It means you have to watch a lot of fights, but you also have to have references with people and rules that you talk to and collaborate with. You have to you have to really have the time to do it also. You have to like put the effort into it. But but I think um, a, an unsaid kind of aspect is you also kind of have to like it a bit or see at least some kind of intrinsic value in it because if it isn't just for you as like a fan to appreciate it more, it's also, just, like, understanding kind of, like, hey, this guy's doing some cool stuff. I want to understand how that cool stuff works. So, as for um, discussions in general, I think um, th- there's a whole um, conversation I had a few years ago with a professor of mine about objectivity versus subjectivity in analysis. And um, I-, I always remember what he said because I think it kind of outlines how I think quite a bit. Um I don't think, first and foremost, you can have everything be perfectly objective. I don't think that's possible ever, Um, especially in regards to MMA analysis, where the sport is constantly so fluid and dynamic, and you have so many different possibilities, but also so many variations of, like, single, like, subsets. You also have, um, just in general, like, this this is kind of, um, I I think, kind of an unsaid thing about analysts and why there's such an anti-intellectual or just, like, confusing, like, what qualifies as an analyst rhetoric out there. But, like, the thing about analytical communities in general is that I don't think any one of us has ever claimed to be 100% right. And, in fact, I would argue we're all willing to be wrong. We're just going into it with having made tons of empirical observations based upon pattern recognition and trying to explain those patterns to other people where it's like, okay, we've seen all the data We've seen all the patterns. We've made all these observations. Here's what we think it means. And we interpret it and make it accessible for other people to understand. And now that implicitly means we're waiting on a response from someone else maybe to go, hey, I maybe found something else that maybe counteracts what you said or maybe like adds to what you said. And that is a good thing because that way we all kind of can start talking and create this community where it's like, Hey, we're learning more about this guy, hey, this fighter who participates, and that way we establish some threshold of what's going on more and kind of build towards that kind of understanding. And I think that's kind of the sense of objectivity we're going for. Now, subjectivity, like, that's going to happen because we all have biases. You can't get rid of bias ever. I don't think that's possible, especially in, like, a conversation like this. But there are some things you can do. One, you talk with other people, you collaborate with them. And especially, I think, people who maybe don't exactly have the same favorites as you. You can also apply, like, different kind of stances, like constantly asking yourself questions. What if I'm wrong about this? What am I seeing? Why is it important? Et cetera, et cetera. Like, personally, for me, what I try to do every single piece of footage I look at or something I play in general, is I ask myself two questions constantly. I call it um, my what-so-what method. I say, what am I watching? Like, what am I seeing? It's really basic. It's general. Anyone can do this. Just describe what's happening. 
And then I go into the so what section, which is why is this important? And try to explain it, like interpret it based upon observations, hypotheticals, etc. As long as I'm acknowledging all these like little intricacies and hold my reader's hand, I create some kind of avenue for discussion or explanation. And I think that's how you kind of solve the potential objectivity, anti-intellectual kind of conversation to some degree, but it's probably not going to go away perfectly. Yeah. Something I'd add to that too is um, just for someone that is trying to start doing these kinds of doing analysis with MMA or really with anything, and this is something I, I also try to impress upon my grad students, is when you both when you're learning something and when you're trying to make novel observations, like be it in research or um, just trying to, you know, develop whatever whatever theory or whatever best practice you're trying to do in your own life. Um, a very underrated thing is, I think, the power of analogy. And this, in science and in mathematics, this ends up being really deep. Um, if you pursue analogies with some other better, well understood thing in, you know, whatever kind of novel area you're trying to research in, like, this often tends to lead you in extremely fruitful directions. Sometimes in mathematics, it leads you to precise equivalences in things, like what seems like an analogy, sort of just a general umbrella in which you can organize your thoughts, ends up being more than that. It ends up kind of literally describing the thing that you set out to describe in the first place. And in the context of MMA, you know, it's a little bit more difficult maybe to start using analogies with other things precisely because MMA is such is at such an ill-defined stage. You know, the judges don't agree on the rules. Uh, the commentators are fucking clowns uh, and, and confuse the audience. But, but nonetheless, at least we have as kind of theoretical angers, we do have these other sports. We have boxing, we have jujitsu, um, we have sports with best practices and well-defined rule sets, wherein we can start to build analogies to uh, phenomena that you observe in MMA. And I think just trying to be alert to those comparisons um, already gives you kind of a great way to start thinking about MMA, even though it's a much broader discipline. Yeah. Like, I find it quite ridiculous that so many people seem to brush aside things like impact as something subjective, and by subjective they usually mean anything goes, and uh, there are degrees of subjective, and something being subjective doesn't mean there isn't a, a degree of objectivity you can look out for or narrow down the subjective things you're looking for until you reach something sensible. But either way, uh, there is always going to be a certain degree of separation and as i've stated before the idea here is to narrow the gap bring the gap uh make the gap as narrow as possible for uh to to uh, allow for as little loss of information as there is um uh, well as possible and uh here's one thing i wanted to ask um i think you've uh uh, particularly you, operator. I think you've faced it quite often in uh, your everyday life and your uh, in your field of work. There's uh, there's always a certain like interplay between uh, field communicators and field experts. And uh, the question I wanted to ask you: Can communicators? Uh, and I think the question will be <laughs> the answer will be obvious to you. But for the sake of our listeners, can communicators and their pursuit for clarity fall into the same pitfalls fight analysts do when they wish to present their ideas in a condensed and simple manner? 
Yeah. Um, yeah, sh short answer, yes. And I have a lot of gripes with kind of communicators in my own fields and, and the pitfalls that they fall into. So I can start by outlining those and then kind of point to the similar trends that, that you can see in MMA analysis and MMA commentary. Um, so, and I think a lot of the kind of basic pitfalls can be categorized into the difference between actually like scientists versus scientism, or, you know, like one of these, these popular terms that, that appears nowadays, which, and, and there's another real problem also, which is that a lot of times, and this is maybe a criticism that's levied against uh, MMA uh, analysts too, but, um, a lot of times the, the people that are publicizing the field, like the primary famous science communicators in the field, are not themselves actually doing cutting edge science either anymore or ever. Uh, there are a couple exceptions, but you know, by and large, some of the, the best known and, mo and most beloved science communicators are just simply not at the forefront of things. And that means that their opinions are going to necessarily lack some important subtleties and nuances. And you might think, okay, when you're communicating broad brush things like that to a general audience, you don't necessarily need to be at the forefront of research. You just need some solid understanding of the basics and you need to be charismatic or whatever. That's basically not true. And this is exactly why you see a lot of science communicators giving what experts in the field know to be oversimplified, kind of cartoonish, um, and in particular, misleading descriptions of whatever it is they're trying to talk about. Um, and, and this is, I think, why people kind of levy the criticism uh, at analysts that, oh, you know, you guys aren't professional fighters or long-term coaches or whatever. How can you possibly, you know, communicate something effective? You know, how can you really know, know a thing uh, well enough to communicate it if you are sort of not also the primary expert or uh, like a long-time professional in your field? Um, and I think the answer to, well, at least the answer to the, the, you know, getting expertise in science is obviously a tricky and intricate question, and I can't really solve that now. But with respect to uh, analysis, honestly, just giving thoughtful takes and, um, like, detailed observations is far and away, like, a huge improvement on, on pretty much most of the things that are out there right now. Um, and, you know, this is, MMA is a nascent field. It's young. It's at a stage where people can just simply benefit from outsider takes and, and people that are paying attention and, and, and giving a thoughtful perspective on things. Um, in science communication, this is, there, there's a bit of a difference in that, like physics and mathematics and, and whatever else are extremely old fields, and you do need to build up a huge bevy of expertise in order um, to, to really get certain things right. Um, MMA has the benefit that a thoughtful outsider take can actually go really far. Um, yeah, there's a problem where uh, certain, like, uh, a, a big subset of MMA fans, of MMA fans, uh, seem to think that being the, the the simple act of being an MMA fighter automatically makes you a strategic genius or gives you credibility uh, to comment on the sport and uh, talk about the co concepts uh, of fighting and uh, break down the fighting fundamentals. Like, why do you think MMA fighters need coaches and why, why do camps explicitly pay for scouting services 
quite often. If it's a good camp, that is. Some camps do not even like do scouting or uh, think about a strategy in any like defined way. And uh, plugging my Jackson hoodwink joke. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> pretty much. Essentially, like uh, what was the joke again? Uh, it was something like uh, if a fighter goes to a camp with a, a big reputation, but that's been coasting on its reputation for years and actually sucks, it's called getting Jackson Hoodwink. <laughs> yeah, that's pretty much it. I, it was more eloquent on Twitter. But that, was <laughs> that that is the case. That is the case with a lot of camps uh, around the world. Well, in particular in America, but because MMA is, uh, I think, it's um, still. Uh, it shouldn't be controversial to say that uh, MMA is predominantly an American sport still, uh, simply because uh, by the sheer fact that uh, the UFC is uh, is a hegemon in the market and uh, most of its fan base is located in America. But re- regardless, like coaches and fighters uh, frequently focus on very specific areas of skill development, and it leaves them with uh, little to no time to break down and analyze and analyze concepts like ringcraft, footwork, and etc., uh, etc., et from a big-picture strategic standpoint and from a tactical standpoint. And from, well, basically from a standpoint of, a, of someone who actively thinks about the interplay between these things in the MMA matter. And uh, fighters frequently have no time to, to take a step back and reflect on what they've learned, uh, because... Uh, well, simply because they have to fight. They have no time for all this crap. They have no time to sit down and stare at uh, notes and uh, uh, watch th- uh, hundreds of hours of footage. But, uh, and yeah, certainly, and we've talked about this a lot elsewhere on Twitter, on social media, or on blog posts, or in the Discord, but uh, uh, there is value to be found, and Zach Makovsky will attest to this, uh, Zach Makovsky, the Bellator champion, the UFC veteran, that uh, the outsider's perspective uh, gives uh, uh, something that fighters and coaches simply cannot hit upon because they are so narrowly focused on actually winning fights. They simply have no time to sit down, take a step back and, and look at all this with critical eyes. And uh, yeah, certainly high-level competition experience offers certain perspectives that uh, you would not get through any other means as outside of actually competing at a high level and but there are certain things that may approximate it but it's still it's a, it's a world in itself and uh, fighting yeah analogies analogies is essentially all that we do essentially everything that we rely upon to convey analysis but nonetheless fighting is not something you can quite understand unless you've actually been in the fight you can approximate the uh certain basics and kind of like sort of internalize certain basics but uh in these uh, in in the strictest in the strictest sense of the word it's better to sort of like be on the side of coercion well i think one thing that people misunderstand is that there are certain types of um for lack of a better word expertise and analysis right at its most basic level, one of the things that makes intellectual pursuits, so let's use an example, say if you wanted to be a high-level communicator or also, um, please excuse the pun, a high-level operator in theoretical <laughs> physics, um, you're kind of using the same set of, for lack of a better word, brain skills in many ways to become an expert in both. 
But if you are a high-level analyst in mixed martial arts and you're also a high-level fighter, it's possible to be those two things and actually not have a tremendous overlap of skills. So let's uh, use an example of um, Daniel Cormier, right? And no, this is not going to be a DC bash session. Calm the fuck down, people that actually care about him. <laughs> so what, what I mean with this is, right, like when DC comes out to fight, yeah, he's using physical skills mostly. Like I think we would all agree that DC's game is built around... I have tremendous physical advantages. I leverage them on an opponent. Now, I think it's a fair analysis of DC to say that DC is not using the same muscles in both a literal or metaphorical sense when he goes out and fights as he does when he talks about analysis. And I think DC himself has freely admitted that. So what that means is that in order to be a high-level mixed martial artist or a high-level wrestler or a high-level anything, DC is going to have to spend most of his time mastering the physical aspects of bashing some fucking skulls in, right? Like, that seems... So DC doesn't have the time to specialize in thinking about concepts like critically examining footage, studying opponents, because he's too busy running the fucking miles. He's too busy, you know, eating the Popeye's chicken. He's too busy being <laughs> a physical person with a physical presence, right? Whereas if you're somebody like uh, Dr. Brian Cox, you know, there's not a perfect overlap between his science communication and his thinking about, you know, thinking about the stars, so to speak. But there's a lot more of an overlap, right? So I think people really misunderstand the idea of specialization and fail to understand that the specialization of a high-level mixed martial artist into being a high-level mixed martial artist means they don't have a lot of time or energy or brain power to use for necessarily understanding all of the nuances of high-level mixed martial arts, right? Because when I see people say that, it's in like, how dare you trash talk this guy? He is a high-level X. He understands it better than you do. My honest answer to a lot of those people is you genuinely don't understand the stresses of high-level competition, do you? You don't understand that to be top five in the world at something with lots of money and relevance on the line and everybody coming for your fucking neck, you don't have the time to think about stuff that isn't, you know, directly relevant to you winning. Scouting opponents, thinking about the long-term trends of the meta, you know, thinking about tightening up certain areas of your form that are not an issue for you now and will probably not be an issue for you for the next two years, but if you don't develop a less energy-intensive style, will probably start to get you knocked the fuck out as you age. That is not shit that is high on a list of a high-level competitor's, you know, worries. Yeah, so I think, I think a lot of people fail to, that. Yeah, I wanted to like cap off well, what I was trying to say basically along those lines as well, which is I think you know communicators in a specialized field really to be successful need to have expertise. But exactly as Hacks was saying, when it, when it comes to this MMA shit, there are different axes of expertise, and the ones that you know like TFS really offers um, are might be along kind of a different direction than, than a high-level competitor, but they're nonetheless expertise. It's just a complementary area, and, and the, the, um, the subject is, is kind of broad enough that that is, is perfectly consistent. Yeah, and that brings us really to the... Uh, we, we, I think we talked enough about... Uh, we, we've... Uh, done our best to outline all the issues that we're facing here when, when with regards to communicating analysis but uh what, like how do you establish communications what solutions we can uh, f uh use to establish communications between uh the 
seemingly disparate fields with uh, like fight analysis versus scouting versus coaching. How do you establish communications between these three fields to actively affect the way fighters fight and quite possibly in the long run improve uh, improve the baseline level of quality of the sport and uh, clarify the problems and the be and uh, sort of do away with all the misconceptions that are that currently permeate the MMA community. Uh, who is <laughs> willing to start broaching the subject? Come on, me. Um, oh, of course, right. naturally. Yeah. 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 So <laughs> I, I do want to wrap up two quick like little things um, from a previous topical matter uh, that I do have to say. So I do think um, analysts in general, such as TFS, do get kind of this. Um, I, I've kind of hinted at this earlier, but I want to be crystal clear. I don't really think um, most analysts or people who are aspiring to be analysts should or probably don't think of themselves entirely as quote-unquote professional expert analysts because oh, no. I think I think it's way better and way healthier for us to see each other in kind of a more community kind of sense of like lear fellow learners and collaborators because I, I'm speaking maybe from my former educational background and maybe operator can also attest to this also but it's like when you're teaching students you want those students to basically be better than you at this at some point so you can learn something from them. And that's kind of, I think, what a lot of analysts strive for because it's like we're not showing people all this just to prove that maybe we're like better and more knowledgeable than you. Although it is cool to know a lot of this stuff, but it's like we want to share this because we find it cool and we want you to be able to eventually – be able to share stuff with us and it creates this feedback network that's how our site for instance has all these staff members <laughs> who talk to each other a lot for instance yeah and it elevates um, the field exactly like that's kind of the point and so and so it's not like an on purpose thing where it's like we're trying to be exclusionary i understand people maybe being like yeah you're kind of being a little like aggressive or maybe not like handling it in civilized discussions as much as you should which is definitely i think a totally fair legitimate criticism because i do but i also have a counter argument that i'll get to in a minute i do think that um analysts in general don't really think of themselves as analysts though i think looking at ourselves as kind of like avid learners is a far healthier kind of endeavor but i i will say um in regards to answering the question of how can we really change all this or start to address these issues i i think our site has kind of been trying to figure that out and i don't really think there's a clear established answer because it's probably going to be a permanently uphill battle because we're dealing with the dominant narratives of a far more mainstream ideals or ideas more than anything else but it's like i think getting the content out of there out there inaccessible, readable, watchable for people to see is the main thing. So it's why we make commentary. So it's like alternative commentaries where we explain what's going on as things are going on. But I think also making ourselves accessible and making the works that people can follow, giving very specific, here's what's happening, why it's happening, why is it important is really, really important because people can start to connect the dots themselves because it's like, knowledge is pretty transferable across different areas for instance like i made this partial like joke on twitter but the other day but it's kind of true you want to know how i personally figured out ringcraft 
it's because I play very difficult video games where positioning in those games was really, really important. Another thing is I've also taught in the classroom and paying attention to where students' desks are and navigating that classroom, that's easily transferable to paying attention to how guys move in the cage or ring and stuff. So I apply those different skills or like observational kind of skills to a different kind of area. And encouraging people to kind of think like that's important too because I do think some people who are trying to be analysts um, make the mistake of like they know what things are but they don't really understand what things are if that makes sense because it's like I'll see someone who's maybe just like saying like hmm this guy's entries are pretty good but maybe he could work on his footwork and I always just sit there kind of thinking okay you're saying that and maybe there's a part of me that agrees with you but why why did you come to that conclusion can you explain that to someone else can you properly articulate it so it's like for instance in all my articles i constantly talk about boxers who use their jabs a lot and so i want to so i can say this guy has a good jab here's how i can describe it's a good jab because it accomplishes a couple of things it measures distance i go over the purposes of the jab like here's all its utilities and here's examples where I see this guy doing it consistently. So I have proofs for basically how I accomplished something or figured something out. Now, ideally, th that's something that requires a lot of research. And yeah, that's true. But I have the proof out there. I have the concepts out there. And I've explained it in a specific, elaborative way for other people to get it. And I, I think, like, the other thing is... Um, I really think encouraging people to ask questions or having conversations is important, making ourselves accessible. I get people who DM me a lot, and I encourage people to DM me because I like to answer questions. And if I don't know, well, I'll pass it off to one of my peers, and maybe they can answer it because it's like wrestling isn't my niche. It's not my strength. So if someone asks me, hey, how would you describe a good takedown entry? I'd go like, well, here's what I think, but I wouldn't consider myself an expert or probably the best person. So I'm going to pass this answer off to Ed. And Ed, here's Ed's screenshotted answer just for reference. And hope that helps. And maybe they come back for more. Maybe they start engaging me in more discussions. And maybe, hey, one day they start explaining things to me too. And it's like, well, that's cool. But I think encouraging questions is really, really important. It, but answering questions is also really, really key. And Twitter and Reddit aren't the best platforms for that. But I think giving it some effort as long as the other person is willing to give effort is kind of important. Th those are kind of my two cents, but it's kind of an uphill battle. Yeah, and this is maybe partly like the scientist in me, but when people make statements of the sort you said, Dan, like, oh, this this fighter is good at entries but needs work on his footwork, you know, that's a general enough statement where I think we're not kind of defining our terms. Okay, what do you mean by footwork? I mean, does he get back up again, backed up against the cage a lot? If so, against what sort of fighters? You know, is he good or bad at, you know, corralling his opponent against the cage to execute some part of his game? You know, just kind of making precise not just the general scope of things that are going on, but in what context, in what phase of the game, in relation to what game plans and overarching strategies, um, you know, because these uh, these kind of vague statements aren't actually necessarily telling the story or just making it a clear jumping off point for for analyzing anything properly. Yeah, speaking of definitions, we, we use this term fight analyst all over and over again, and yet I don't think 
anyone has actually came up with any specific definition for what a fight analyst is or what uh, a fight analyst does. How would you, you pronounce an analyst? <laughs> how would you define analysis and uh, how, well, either of you? This is a question to everyone. How would you define? A I'm fight? helping you with your pronunciation that you complain. Shut so the fuck much up! About. How do how would either of you define uh, uh, what a fight analyst does, and uh, how would you define the term itself? What is the definition of a fight analyst and uh, uh, their field of uh, field of work? Any ideas? Well, I've thought a lot about analysts in the past, so I'm glad you asked the question. <laughs> um, no, it's it's really unfair to drop these these big questions on us, Iggy. I, that that I haven't thought of how to properly define things before, but I guess that's what I'm advocating for. Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's 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 why I have my own show. I feel like I feel like I've fallen into my own trap. I always I always blindside people. That's why. That's why he's also that's why you'll never be invited on heavy hands again. Yes, that's why I'm. I I have an answer, but I'm not allowed to talk. Also, Hax is also here. He also he also is doing this because we've had a podcast. We've already answered this. It's okay. It's okay. Um, Yeah. So I think um, I think basically how I've always thought of analysis is it's kind of um, maybe not science is the right word, but I think it's kind of the process of. Um, examination and explanation and I think generally just what an analyst does is it they just want to explain things they want to outline things and make it accessible for maybe a wider audience as um, and then create kind of that like ongoing discourse I think an analyst's job is to just take maybe some information that isn't necessarily as widespread prevalent knowledge and try to like outline some kind of discourse or more simplifications of it to other people. Yeah, I feel like right now MMA uh, analysis is kind of at the analogous stage to Darwin just kind of rolling up to the Galapagos and making a bunch of detailed observation about like cool species of birds that he found, um, and then trying to fit it into some kind of overarching framework that explains things. Um, that's like phenomenologically where I think we are, but uh, that's not a satisfactory definition. But you know, you sprung the question on me, so I'm not gonna, I'm not gonna be too upset at myself, Iggy. <laughs> X, it's it's almost like we did a podcast X on this. Has, mm. X has died. He, he, he just went away to play Vermintide or something. No, no, I, I just I just said, like, on my internal audio track, it's almost like we've done a podcast on this a few times, just to be a dick, because now I can pretend that I've had pre-saying for this. But no, it is almost like we've done a podcast on this before. And I don't think I would move too much from the positions in there. I think analysis comes down to kind of three concepts, trying to understand trying to record your understanding in a systematic way so that you continually improve it. It's part of an iterative process. And then being able to communicate that to a specific group of other people so that you can get that information across to them. That doesn't necessarily have to be casual people or experts. It can be whoever you want to get it across to. Um, I would also probably say, you know, that on the whole... um, 
the process of analysis is very much what you want it to be as well. There are a few people on the fight side who I think if you ask them would freely admit that they are more interested in taking analysis and uh, how would I put it, kind of making analysis and making that analysis more digestible by the average person. However, there are equally so people on the fight side who I think are more interested in doing higher order analysis that would probably make more sense to somebody that's already in the game, so to speak. Neither of those approaches is wrong. Uh, another person that I think would be extremely good to give a kind of shout out to is um, uh, Schwan. If you look at his analysis, he kind of has a very unique take on analysis that is very different to a lot of mixed martial arts people because Schwan kind of does two things. I'm probably mispronouncing his name. Apologies. But he kind it's of breaks fine, his analysis fine. down and it, it's kind of he breaks it down into two things. His first type of analysis is what I would call very, um, very uh, rough analysis in the sense he's trying to do analysis for camps so they can understand how to make their fighters better. So it's maybe, you know, it's much more about feeling and it's much more about not what the theoretical best version of the fighter would be or building systems. It's more about how to get you from point A to B. So that's an extremely unique type of analysis that I don't think we have enough of in the mixed martial arts world. And Schwann also has what I would call, for lack of a better word, life analysis. If you look at a lot of the way he analyzes fighters, he t spends a lot of time talking about, particularly in uh, other sports that may not be entirely MMA, or talking about young people getting into the sport for the first time. He talks a lot about the routines of establishing yourself as a person, establishing yourself as a personality, establishing your support system. You know, almost more like almost as much as of, of a life coach as just, you know, punch straight, hit hard and kick the body as part of your attritional technique because you're, you know, because you're a fucking monster over five rounds. So there's I... lots of different approaches to analysis. And maybe I'd just add one last quote because I like introducing Alpha Centauri quotes because it makes Dan have a hernia because he can't understand the game. So, um, you know, look, we, we don't just take, like sand from the beach right and make a fucking computer we use very crude tools to fashion better tools and then we use those better tools to fashion even better tools and we kind of keep doing that over and over again and that's the same with statistics that is the same with analytical approaches each minor refinement is a step in the process right and we need to take all of those steps if we're going to end at a product that doesn't absolutely suck ass I'm fuming. Okay. Um, one, one quick thing I'd add also is just in regards to um, the whole point about... I'm mad now, Hacks. You've distracted me from my point, you fucking prick. <laughs> um, so one really, really important thing about Schwann's analysis is because Schwann... Um, Dictator then. Sh sh what? Nothing, nothing. We got him again. We got him again. Um, <laughs> one, one important thing I think Schwann also introduced quite a bit is the idea of kind of not just looking at fighters in terms of, like, attributes, but also in terms of, like, thinking about weaknesses or, like, overall, like, searching for those little areas where maybe this isn't, like, the area that they're proven in or maybe this isn't, like, their area of strength and kind of asking those hypothetical questions because – I think asking questions is totally fine, as long as you kind of know how to balance those between going like, oh, this guy's defense is bad, what happens entirely? Can you, like, say if his defense is bad or not, based upon who he's fighting? Like, how do you qualify hmm. that based upon the data so far? But I think, like, what 
Schwan really um, brings to the table is that he tries to look at attributes and tries to like they're not necessarily generic statements. They're more just like this is the things we see. These are the observations that maybe we can draw more from and then make them more interesting or worth co- having conversations about. Basically, what this tells me is that we're at a stage where a certain degree of special, uh, specialization is necessary. Uh, it's a very natural process in many fields, I think. Uh, I don't think it's, it would be a controversial statement to say that specialization is uh, is a sort of that sprungs up naturally if the field uh, and something that needs to be cultivated if the field needs to survive. And uh, it opens up uh, new markets, new uh, directions, and etc., uh, etc. Et and so, uh, like, n- normally, like, looking at uh, the type of analysts that we employ at the fight side, the type of analysts uh, we employ uh, is, um, I would define them as uh, people who, through various theoretical and practical means... Uh, try to communicate fighting concepts and explain fighting concepts based on empirical evidence. And the empirical evidence in question is, uh, well, fight footage. And uh, there are certain, and everyone's methodology is different, but so far, the way we can define the fight side method- methodology is that we do not use stats, we do not rely on fight metric, and if we do, it's only... We, uh, we only do it after careful scrutiny and in the appropriate context, because obviously, as we already outlined in, in the beginning, fight metric is, is uh, extremely flawed and subject to human error, because it's just two guys pushing buttons from a position in which they do, cannot see the strikes land appropriately or do not understand what substitutes uh, a significant strike, for, even. Like, uh, for example, uh, checked kicks checked leg kicks and checked body kicks count as significant strikes that are that have landed in fight metric uh, if you <laughs> if you go back and look at the uh, stats for the chris we- uh, chris weidman versus uriah hall almost pronounced it like the german way there <laughs> if you go back and uh, watch at the stats for that for, for that fight what you'll find is that it lists zero significant strikes landed for uriah hall and uh, two significant strikes attempted for Chris Weidman, one landed, 50% clip, and one significant strike. And what happened in that fight? <laughs> Chris Weidman quote-unquote landed the significant strike and broke his own leg in half. That's what happened. <laughs> and so, there's like... Uh, and I think we already we are already seeing the various examples of specialization in the field with... Uh, People who go for stats, people who go for the approach that's weird. Sorry, I need to put my hand up about something. Yeah, sure. I need to I need to take offense with the clear derision you had towards Chris Weidman's striking accuracy there. He hit fifty percent of his strikes and it led to a fight ending exchange. That's pretty sure that's uh that's Sean O'Malley levels of accuracy. Why are you hating on him? Yeah, yeah, the, the, exactly. Exactly. This is uh, the the example of a very fair criticism that everyone at the fight side gets at one point or another. <laughs> <laughs> Especially from people like who enjoy stats and people who uh, who are betters, who made lots of money on MMA, so obviously they understand the fight game much better than the so-called analysts. But so this is the main problem with uh, the use of the term analyst, even because analyst is kind of like uh, I don't think you can deny that analyst 
is kind of is a bit of a pretentious term, you know. <laughs> so it it gives uh, this air of uh, this air of uh, uh, importance to people who are essentially hobbyists. Uh, a lot of us are hobbyists. A lot of us do this because we enjoy this. Uh, we enjoy talking about fights. We enjoy breaking down all the technical and nitty gritty stuff. But uh, none of us. It's a, a fight analyst is not really you know an actual job yet at least and uh well it, it is a job that is um fight analysts are employed by the ufc and the espn in in this exact specific you know uh area and uh well quite frankly they usually enjoy ba- they usually employ analysts based on and enjoy analysts based on their credentials and those credentials are usually had a bunch of fights and uh someone like robin black for example who was prominently featured on many uh, uh media outlets for his uh well for his uh high quality input. allow me to take it from here <laughs> uh pseudo intellectual bullshit uh-huh. highfalutin analyst nonsense so, talking about ring craft and shit Look, well, looky here, we got a name. Please support my thesaurus. <laughs> I mean, th- this kind of reinforces another point that I've made once or twice. Uh, a common criticism that people have against, um, against, I don't know, I'm going to put it in quotes again, analysts is this whole skin in the game thing, which, you know, really just reads to me like these people have read one Nassim Taleb book and have completely, number one, failed to understand that there is a lot of subtlety and complexity that goes into Taleb's actual academic stuff as opposed to stuff where he's just trying to, you know, push some buttons and get reactions because he's very good at it. Uh, number two, they've also ignored the fact that a lot of people don't like Taleb as a result, so maybe that's not the approach you want to be going for. <laughs> but, uh, bless Taleb. He's a very entertaining person and very sharp, but he is also very opinionated. But, um, you know, the third point I'd make is that, you know, there's this weird fucking mentality in mixed martial arts, which I don't understand, which is um, the only way to um, have skin in the game is to put money on the line and that's especially weird for me because i don't know if any of you have paid attention to this thing called uh mixed martial arts right but um there's this crazy thing that you can do and it's called um it's called training and fighting right have you guys have you guys heard of that and like in training and fighting you get physically hurt and you get punched in the face and you get kicked in the body and you can suffer permanent potentially life-affecting damage it also costs you time which you could be using to um i don't know just a controversial opinion work in a career you might be more skilled in and make money so when i see people saying you know you awful analysts with your lack of skin in the game you fucking loser ryan wagner you don't (laughs) bet so you just you you you, you suck dicks when ryan has like what 35 fights as in in mt has competed in grappling competitions like and some guy on the internet that hasn't had one fucking fight, but Betts is like, bro, you're not putting anything on the line. Like, please just tie a silk rope around your neck and pull it twice. Like, the, the gene pool is better off without you. Yeah, to quote, uh, to quote, I w- almost said the late, almost said the late and great Kyle McLaughlin. But <laughs> either way, to quote the late, great Kyle McLaughlin, <laughs> please end it all. <laughs> just... 
pointless. How does he put it? He, he always puts it in a very particular way. He always phrases it like... Log off forever. Yes, yeah, so something like that, but uh, much more permanently. <laughs> Touch grass. Touch grass is also a good oh, one. Yeah. <laughs> but yeah. Uh... But yeah, like I kind of want to just come full circle with that because it's like there is different ways that you can show commitment to... Um, to an idea other than just betting money. People in the fight site, some of them get paid money to write stuff and the way that they get paid money is from people that are like, hello, I like your content. I am going to provide you with money to keep creating the content. That's skin in the game. Some people their, have made it clear. reputations attached. Exactly. Some people have put their real life name and voice that's skin in the game. Some people like Ed and Seth have competed in real wrestling teams, which involve getting physically hurt and injuries that have actually affected the quality of their life. That's skin in the game. You know, some people have made it very clear, and I have no reason not to disbelieve them, that the time they spend writing about punching on is time they could be spending on a far more productive job that would earn them a lot more money, doing overtime shifts or whatever. That's skin in the game. So basically, this I you know this idea that you can't be a meaningful analyst unless you have something on the line. This in itself is not a terrible idea, and this is an idea that is reflected well in the skin in the game principle uh, that Taleb pushes, but to try and take that complexity and reduce it to haha bro what's your betting profile it's just kind of such it, it's such a limited way of thinking about investment for starters right that i kind of can't take these people seriously when they argue the concept in the first place it's just you know people short version people show investment in different ways you shouldn't be expecting people to show they're invested in this by just putting money on the line there are a million ways to show investment one of the most obvious is by getting punched in the face to learn the sport better a lot of the people in the fight site clearly do get punched in the face and that's not me making a joke about the quality of their twitter feed posting give them a little credit please I mean, it's kind of a miracle that I haven't gotten punched in the face for the for me posting Thanos cock on the TL all the time, without without any filters, you know. But uh, <laughs> I did get punched in the face quite a lot during the course of my life, and uh, it it wasn't in a competition setting, but uh, at the very least, I know what it get what it feels like to get punched in the face. So uh, I I don't feel like comments from people like that are particularly threatening you know to my well-being when i actually have more pertinent things threatening my well-being at this very instance <laughs> all around me <laughs> that's just how i live <laughs> but you know but yeah to back back to i think we veered away from uh, i veered away from my original um argument that i was trying to make uh, it's uh, it was about specialization and how uh further development um in uh, the fight analysis sphere may lead to uh the well the emergence of different types of analysts that are whose roles are very clearly defined and it creates less confusion amongst the fan base like this analyst specializes on the specific technical and form breakdowns the, the specific mechanics of each technique and strike or uh like the, the biomechanics of uh, how they 
how fighters perform certain things. And this analyst specializes on the big picture strategic stuff. On he, uh, he or she describe the various um, approaches that a fighter may take in order to win the fight. It's uh, long-term and short-term goals. So they define the methods employed by the fighter in those specific terms and etc uh, etc et and uh, like um, to bring examples from uh, other more well-established fields operator do you th- do you have any examples off the top of your head on which sort of specializations that and how uh, may develop and how how the whole process works uh, from your experience I mean, I actually really like Hax's example of, of Schwann as being, as being kind of closer to, to the substrate, so to speak, to, to, to coaches and fighters. Mm-hmm. Um, because like in physics, um, so broadly physics is split into experiment and, and theory. But within theory, there's a huge number of subspecialties. There's kind of the very abstract, very uh, close to being pure mathematics stuff. And then there's a class of theory that's what we call, that, that we call uh, phenomenological. And I'm, I'm still oversimplifying for the purposes of the explanation, but whatever. But the phenomenologists are um, very close to experimentalists. Like, they're the sort of people that digest some aspects of the formal theory to interface with the people on the ground building the experiments to um, guide how the experiment should be designed, um, t- like, towards making possible predictions based on very concrete models. So it's, it's kind of a much more... Um, getting your hands dirty, uh, constructing constructing possible models, down-to-earth form of theory, as opposed to the very kind of high-level abstract mathematical stuff, which builds these large frameworks that then kind of filter down towards experiment, towards these concrete predictions. So, so just in, like there's in plain English, <laughs> like could you could you do a plain English explanation, or because I have one, but I want to see if you've earned the right to say yours first. A plain English explanation of which which part of it for the whole thing. Of, of yeah, kind of the whole thing as a concept. Um, I so I can <laughs> I can say something, and you can tell me how close it is to plain English or not. I have trouble gauging my own my own plain English. Uh, no, you should have uh, a crack. There's the no point. better opportunity than to do it than now. I can take a swing. Yeah, so so basically there's um you could be the sort of theorist that um works on basic frameworks like how do we understand how particles collide together um how do we compute these processes what general features do our computations have um like basically what's what what is the mathematics the mathematical language uh, upon which the universe is built. Or you could be the sort of theorist that says, okay, I want to know um, what sort of species of particles, what kinds of particles might show up if we build a big collider that crashes them together precisely at this energy, and if I um, make a little toy model with these assumptions, then I predict that this, uh, that there's like this probability of this species of particles coming up if we crash things together at, at these energies. Um, but they would have need to they would have needed input from kind of the first sort of theorist, the very mathematical theorist, so that they would know how to do the computations 
um, to make those predictions in the first place. Those were the two levels. Was that was that plain Englishy or? Yeah, it's funny because I'm now you. You can probably guess whose explanation I'll be quoting, um, or you might be able to take a crack at it. But um, I was going to say, if you really want to go to gutter level English, you can kind of describe those people as people whose job it is to uh, connect all the really cool shit they're doing with actual machines, with all the abstract shit nobody understands that's supposed to, you know, capture the universe in a bubble. Because really, that's it. You're trying to, you know, you're trying to take the theories from the top and connect it to stuff that we can actually see <laughs> oh dear <laughs> because you know let's be honest most people can't conceptualize stuff they can't see and that's and it's kind of why i'm glad we've actually got into a discussion about physics here because um let's go damage right damage is one of those things that get that gets taken apart and deconstructed and argued so much and if you really think about it for the average person that's never trained in particular and never been hit by a body punch and doesn't understand how in the fifth round getting hit by a whacker of a, bo a body punch affects your stance makes you hesitate makes the you know ultra sharp jab that you've been throwing for five rounds start dipping a little bit there's a weakness in your shoulder if you don't see all of those things because you have the tactile understanding that um, all three of you have spoken about the gap between your understanding of why that punch did more damage on you and why it should count as more damage and why it should score is as deep between you and a theoretical physicist plumbing the edge at the corners of the universe in the end the fact is that the average person can't see either and they're both equally confusing oh for fuck's sake Ugh. yeah or maybe even another more down to earth example is I'm very good at figuring out what kind of mathematics one needs to develop a theory in the abstract. I can't put shit on a computer and tell you um, like how many particles will come out of a collider experiment with what probability. Like I can't code for shit, for example. Uh, there are well-defined theoretical physicists with that kind of computational bridge rule. They can take the shit, put it on a computer, program it, and make numbers come out. I don't like numbers. I'm, I'm a symbols person. Um, so you need people that can interface between the symbols people and, uh, and the experimentalists. There's, there's probably also a point there worth noting that one of the reasons that physics is an idea to try and translate uh, MMA has kind of come up in this discussion a few times is we use mathematics for clarity. And a lot of people go, what the fuck? I look at math and it makes no sense. But one of the great things about mathematics is while understanding mathematics is not easy, particularly if you do not have training in it, one of the few advantages of mathematics over words is that there is only one way to interpret a mathematical expression. Oh, okay, people will argue that based on their understanding. I'm about to get hit by a thousand different philosophers. But, um, you know, when you state your assumptions mathematically, there is very little room for debate as to what you are actually stating. On the other hand, people are still punching each other in the face, shooting guns at each other, bombing each other, and having really, really nasty, hurtful words on Twitter over what Karl Marx actually meant because he took the effort to fucking express his opinions in words. So there's always that ambiguity there. Yeah, and <clears throat> yeah, certainly uh, mathematics are able to uh, take away and uh, limit a lot of the confusion that's, uh, that happens whenever someone tries to communicate using uh, plain spoken language. But 
uh, how would you really apply mathematics to fighting in this case is, uh, is I think, the logical question. Dead silence. <laughs> I think I, I would I would say one thing. Hysterical laughter. Yeah. I would say one thing. Lies, I, damn lies, and statistics. I think there's... Um, I think for now, I think it would be fair to say that we are limited by the amount of technology that we have, uh, by the level of technology that we have right now, or rather by the ability to imp implement the technology that already exists um, at a level where it would be, where it would make sense to start using mathematics as opposed to uh, spoken, uh, spoken language and written language. For example, things like uh, pressure sensors and things like um, specific, like uh, smart cameras and all that. You know, well, you know, you get where I'm going with this. Yeah, I think that's pretty accurate. Like, um, I've said this before, one of the reasons that we can econometrics the fuck out of baseball is because baseball has so many components of it that are objective. If you hit, now, I don't know what the distance is it may be different across different arenas i have no fucking idea please don't stab me in an alleyway baseball nerds i don't want to be killed with a thousand protractors <laughs> but the point is if you hit the if you hit the ball far enough right it's objectively a, a run yes like I, I understand that much about baseball like there's no disputing it there's no subjectivity it simply is like that and secondly, no matter how long it takes, at the end, the, the, the game of baseball will end at a certain period of time when you have more points than the other team. MMA can't even get to that fucking stage because we don't know when half the fights end. And we have no way of objectively measuring your success because strike counts are not objective it, because they do not include the damage. Whereas the process of getting a home run includes both the objectivity, it's a, it's a point, you know, and you get it by reaching a point that isn't disputed. It's not two dudes hitting a CompuBox statistic. It's, holy shit, you hit this thing X distance. It's no longer in the field. But that also includes the damage. It's not just that you hit it far enough to get the point. It's that one point is worth one point. One strike is not always worth one strike. How the fuck do you measure that? So, yeah, that's what stops the mathematization of um, combat sports, so to speak. Yeah, and uh, to point out an obvious thing uh, in case someone... Uh, some of the listeners get confused <laughs> and i'm used to <laughs> trying to make statements like this just in case uh there is an objective moment where the fight ends it's when the fighter gets finished <laughs> so <laughs> to prevent further con to prevent further confusion i have to state this but yeah um i mean really this just uh brings us to the question of uh uh, well, the question of how one can assess damage, and it's a, really a whole topic in itself. Uh, like, uh, uh, what one should look out for in order to assess damage, and it's going to be inherently subjective, naturally. But, once again, there is a certain degree of objectivity you can bring into it through uh, whether using your own personal experience fighting or through watching tons of fights where lots of... Uh, well, basically hundreds of rounds of fighting. You you keep watching uh, footage for hundreds of hours, and then you start recognizing certain patterns that uh, happen that present themselves when fighters get damaged enough throughout the fight. Things like uh, like the mouth opening, that they begin slowing down once again, and as Hacks pointed out, like the previously extremely sharp jab starts dipping a little bit, or uh, um, 
based on your understanding of uh, body mechanics and punch mechanics, you start understanding which sort of punch would create uh, a particular type of damage and how damaging it would be when it connects on someone on a live target. But either way, it's it's still going to be immensely subjective and it's still going to be rely basically on one's experience and one's understanding of the footage that uh, he or she has watched during the course of, well, once again, hundreds of and uh, upon hundreds of hours. And so it's really, it's kind of a, we're still at a stage where it all depends strictly on, uh, well, on the amount of effort you put into doing research. And uh, it's, it's, it's all going to be filtered through an extreme amount of uh, various uh, biases that uh, the said person, the, the the person in question may have. So once again, the problem of uh, this broken game of telephone for now is uh, probably going to be unavoidable. But I think we've done a pretty good job of outlining how we can establish communications in such a way as to leave uh, as little room for misunderstanding as possible right now, as of this jun- juncture. Basically, what we're advocating for is to outfit all fighters in Tron suits that are, like, covered with sensors and cameras and making the fuck out of everything. <laughs> this is the MMA of the future. It's the future we all need. Yeah, everyone is going to wear mocap suits, and it's uh, all going to be simulated, and it's going to be boring as fuck. This is what we're advocating. <laughs> That's what John Jones is actually preparing for. Haven't you seen him wearing all of those futuristic camo and ghillie suits? He, he's ahead no of his time. You have no idea how well, many cameras are hidden beneath those leaves. Well, I would go as Thousands. far. I would go as far as to say that John Jones actually fights as if they're both wearing a mocap suit, both him as and his opponent, and that they're covered in senses, and he trusts those senses so much that he is willing to actually lose fights. Personally, I just thought John Jones was cosplaying his cousin It, but I guess I was wrong. And John Jones is basically cosplaying. I mean, John Jones is not that dumb for trying to learn how to survive in the harsh world of 2035, which uh, which is I'm pretty sure you can Jack- in the bowels of Jackson Wink. <laughs> <laughs> in the re- net negative he's always no, no, fighting I, I with think, a handicap I, I politely disagree I think you're all wrong I think the reason John Jones is putting on ghillie suits and getting guns is that like with the amount of roids that's been pushed into his body pretty sure the fucking drug department's gonna kick the door down so we may as well be prepared <laughs> to shoot back he's, he's, he's only going to re- he's going to disappear within the next few years and uh, going to reappear in the Alaskan rainforest in 2015. In 2015. I'll go up to heavyweight. <laughs> that's, that's, that's when he will Out reveal of his himself mind, as, having, fat. <laughs> as having gone up to heavyweight. And uh, this is what it takes to become a UFC heavyweight. You have to go insane and become insanely fat. I beat a Muay Thai black belt. Sorry, part of me really hopes that, like, for some reason, him and DC never bury the hatchet and they try and fight each other as 55-year-old men. And, like, I really hope DC... obese at that point. <laughs> that's, why, that's why I'm low-key hoping they fight. Like, because DC, he stays a bit chubby, but, like, you know, he's always, he's always, been, a, he's always been a bit of a rotund fellow, so he just bears it better at 55. Like, just ends the fight in the first round with hammer fists from the top because Jones can't deal with being fat. His tiny legs just break under the stuff. God, what, what a dream fight to commentate. Like, uh, DC appears to be rolling towards Jones, uh, cutting off the cage very effectively in his new weight class. <laughs> 
DC's final form, as Seth would say, he's harnessed the pallies of Italian and become the Pokemon Gollum. <laughs> I don't know what Pokemon Jones would look like, but it'd be, probably be funny. Uh, Pokemon Jones is, uh, is going to be some kind of like... His main power, his primary power would be to uh, to be able to call backup. And in which case, I mean, in this case, I mean the cops. <laughs> this, this is, this, he's going to be a he's going to be a support character. And uh, the last thing Jones says before DC knocks his lights out is just, "It's just Novitsky, Novitsky, help me!" Yeah, and like the primary problem with that is uh, he's he's going to be like an F tier support character because all his uh, attempts to call the cops or all attempts to call backup uh, have a 50 percent chance of backfiring on the person who actually called the cops. And by we, and by back, and by backfiring, I mean it's in the most literal sense possible. They're as literally going to be fired upon. As this discussion's been going on, and us rooting for DC to knock Joe's out, a Dan Martin has suddenly looked into the horizon, going, "Something's wrong." I mean, yeah. No, I think even Dan would back DC over Jones. Honestly, like people think, people think, people think Danny's job is to be the DC hater, but you guys don't understand how much he hates Jones more. Like, holy shit! As we've shown in our nuanced discussion of analysis, context is important. We only hate DC when he's not fighting John Jones in this fictitious heavyweight old man contest. I mean, yeah, basically. Essentially, I think uh, one of the primary reasons for why Danny Martin and a lot of us actually dislike DC is because, uh, well, beyond the he's obvious reasons, <laughs> being a corporate chill, yes, is also something that uh, could have been, well, the perennial white whale of any fight fan is a good heavyweight, and uh, DC could have been that. He could have been decent, and he could have uh, beaten Jones with the attributes that he has. It's just that he does not have the skill set to back those attributes, and that's the primary problem with it. I would also say that I think the DC Jones fight is still a genuinely great way to think about analysis because um, DC can be incredibly insightful, more insightful and more self-aware than Jones has ever been in his life when he talks about certain things about fights. So this is something that I um, I did a tweet thread about. Um, DC talks about Ringcraft as a commentator in, I think, an extremely... Um, what would the word be? I'm going to say efficient because I don't want to sound like I think DC is doing a bad job. I don't think he's doing a bad job. Something maybe that I, I, I neglected to mention earlier was that because you, when you're commentating, you're operating on a time scale, right? You don't have the time to get across complex concepts quickly. And I think when DC is at his best, he explains Ringcraft quite well. The thing is, when DC gets emotional or DC gets invested or DC, for lack of a better word, uh, gets angry, woo, all of that, you know, <laughs> all of that perspective and that uh, analysis flies out the window. He's a fighter who, when he gets emotionally invested, he doesn't fight as well. Uh, Jones probably doesn't have the level of self-awareness that DC has ever had, but because Jones is able to be focused in the fight and keep his head about him, he's usually able to do enough to get over the line. And he's kind of built an aura now that even when I feel he has pretty clearly lost, he gets away with it from the judges. And to Jones's credit, he's very good at playing to that to win a fight. Yeah. And really, like, I mean, we've talked for, uh, what, 120 minutes already? And uh, granted, uh, a good 30 minutes of that was just uh, like random bullshit. But this really brings us to uh, the question of how 
does a fight analyst really break down a fighter in a way that makes sense and eliminates as many biases as possible. And uh, someone like Tyron Woodley is a great example of that. Like uh, many people have, especially, well, the the Tyron Woodley fans that have uh, rooted for him for a long time, they always bring up uh, things like credentials and things like stats to defend Tyron Woodley when when you when based on empirical evidence his actual fights and uh based on what is considered to be the baseline level of skill and fighting and the fundamentals of fighting Tyron Woodley isn't all that you know isn't all that hot but since he has he has a title reign he has title defenses and he has uh, certain credentials people tend to flock to those uh, uh to those things as a, an example as a as a proof of uh, the fact of what is in their mind a fact that uh, Tyrone Woodley is actually, you know, uh, an all-time great or an elite fighter or whatever. But I, I mean, I think uh, this warrants an entire discussion in itself, but to sort of set up and lay the groundwork for the next, uh, um, for the follow-up episode to this discussion, uh, Hacks, what do you think are the primary things that we need to outline here when we talk about fighters like Tyron Woodley or DC or John Jones or general, just whenever you try to uh, offer criticism about a fighter's game or style or career or evaluate their career in general? I think the key is um, have a system of analysis that you make, if not clear, because it's not always easy to be clear, that you make transparent. Have a system, state your biases clearly, and I think, above all else, try and capture some of the humanity of a fighter, not just because you should to not be a dickhead, but because it is important to remember human limitations. Something that I think many people on the fight site have been guilty of at times, but I think to a much greater degree, people who have repeated arguments we have made, is they have ignored that there is only so many things a fighter at top-level competition can focus on and refine at once. Many fighters are genuinely doing the best they can to improve, they just do not have the time. So if you have that system and you have those biases and you have those assumptions and you state it all clearly, you move from a place where you say something like, um, I, I do not... I think DC is trash because he never developed lateral movement, which is a bad take, to I think that it is frustrating for me to watch DC because I think if he had been able to add lateral movement to his game and a second defensive layer, I cannot think of a single fight he had been in where he would not have been a heavy favorite. That, I think, is analysis that captures that you are not um, shitting on DC, you are frustrated because of the wasted potential, and nobody likes to see, jokes aside, somebody get being punched in the face that many times when they could fight in a way where they don't get punched in the face as many times. Yeah, I, I, I'll add a bit to the process thing. So the whole thing with learning analysis, like I said, always comes down to like being measured, but also like always having like that what so what kind of formula or just generically what am i seeing and why is it important and just making that connective tissue between those two things is going to help you not only explain to the audience or whomever you're explaining it to but it's also going to help people kind of see what you're seeing and so it's like a, a good instance is like um i was helping someone a while back like analyze sean o'malley and i was like here, here's the things I see from O'Malley that kind of give me pause for concern. Because it's like, oh, I see how this guy has so much space to work. 
what happens if he doesn't have that space? What does he look like then? That kind of re- creates reason to be skeptical. Asking what if questions can be a little risky because you don't want to jump to assumptions immediately, but it st- introduces different scenarios and starts to help you think outside the box about it. And just starting to ask questions, like I said, that that's kind of something that works for me specifically. Um, just kind of paying attention to situations and never another thing is never pay attention to everything at once because otherwise you're just going to overwhelm yourself start with like the smaller patterns see how those little things connect and then start coming to conclusions that you can explain to other people and once again like hack said always explain those biases because hell everyone has biases you're not going to like everything that everyone else likes but as long as you're acknowledging that that can at least lend some credibility for people to want to listen to you yeah, and, and I think to build off of both of both of uh, those points, um, if you have a clear and transparent method for analyzing a certain fighter's game, I think it's useful to outline various scenarios. You know, based on based on um, this analysis and the observations that I've made about this fighter's game, here is um, how I think they would react if they faced an opponent that had such and such game. Here's how I think their game would um, would fare against a variety of different scenarios. Um, and of course, many of those scenarios might not end up being tested because fighters only fight so many fights and they only have so many you know, opponents in, in their weight class available. But at least if you do that in a principled enough way, then your analysis is going to be subjected to some tests some experimental tests when they actually meet fighters of a particular style. And then based on that, based on the outcome of that, you can start to refine, upgrade, see where you were right, see where you were wrong, and iterate from there. The last thing I'll say is also um, within a set orthodoxy, you're going to get a bunch of exceptions. So occasionally you'll see maybe a bunch of MMA fighters do something, but then someone else comes along and they do something different. And maybe at first you have skepticism whether or not it works, but it still does and don't just immediately dismiss it as going like well this guy kind of just randomly explodes and does stuff maybe there's a different process going on maybe there's a different explanation and i am talking kind of about guys like yoel romero or maybe like khabib Nurmagomedov, who maybe just approach like different subsets of things but context also matters too you have to consider their division you have to consider their competition and then you start narrowing down those little things here or there to explain how they work but context matters thinking about exceptions matters thinking outside the box matters i'd also add one more thing and that is um if you know don't not put a thought out you know don't not have a thought like well, what i mean by that is look there are two options if, if you think something if you have an analytical process behind something that you can write down and you have a thought like uh i don't know so let's have an upcoming fight i think tj would do or perform x against uh against aljo and you have that thought and you feel quite strongly about that thought don't not fucking put it out there don't not try and make that thought a concept because there are two ways it can go. You have a prediction and you get it wrong and you've written down the reasons why you've got it wrong and you can remember the reasons why you predict that way. Now you've learned something. The alternative is you never go through that stage. You never go through the prediction. You never put the thought out there. Well, now you haven't fucking learned anything because you haven't fucking put anything on the line. You know, part of getting better is making 
hypothesis and testing them. So you need to actually do that by making them. So make them. Just don't be a dick about it and have a clear and transparent process for why you made the prediction you made. So what I'm getting from this is uh, uh, something I've hit upon myself, but uh, something that uh, needed to be stated in uh, something that uh, your experiences um, offer to uh, to make those statements uh, <laughs> hit the same points from different angles and sort of like enrich the, the overall ideas, but the overall idea. But yeah, main takeaway is basically just uh, state your biases. Don't don't be afraid to up, uh, admit upfront that you don't like such and such things. Uh, don't like um, a particular style or, or find yourself not enjoying a particular style, etc. Or a technique. But and um, second of all, be nuanced. Uh, fighting is uh, is about doing lots of little things really well, and the same applies to analysis as well. And uh, so, <laughs> trying to uh, think of uh, a concept from many different angles and from uh, uh, many in and try and put that idea in different context in your mind to sort of like maybe find different facets to it is essential and uh, in the end being afraid uh, of being wrong is the primary reason for why you may find yourself not progressing or uh, or plateauing because uh, a lot of people online seem to be a lot of online discourse seems to be focused on dunking on wrong takes dunking on stupid takes and uh, making fun of uh, people who are wrong or making fun of people who are not quite right etc you're not going to improve if you if you are afraid of being wrong i mean being afraid of being wrong a certain level of that uh, healthy uh, caution is necessary to not make stupid statements all the time but also there needs to be basically what i'm saying is there needs to be a balance between being uh, wanting to hit an, a nail on the head and uh being confident in yourself and not being afraid to put out a statement that may not uh, prove to be correct in the end. But yeah, uh, certainly a topic that we can wank each other off about for <laughs> hours and end. <laughs> but <laughs> uh, I think we've um, pretty much hit all the points that we wanted, uh, that we set out in the beginning. And uh, we laid, we have laid the groundwork for uh, for a follow-up discussion where we may examine uh, actual particular examples and uh, sort of like narrow the whole, the whole thing down to something more specific than just broad statements about how one can approach analysis and how one can communicate analysis. But I guess to summarize, uh, a healthy amount of cooperation between everyone is necessary to make this... Uh, this community better and uh, it's okay to specialize in certain things it's, you don't have to know and understand everything to be to 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 be able to offer something of value to the to the discourse so about mma and um about combat sports in general uh, same applies to uh fighting to fighting itself it's okay to specialize in things and it's okay to have and that's why fighters uh, with uh, very developed, very well developed uh, camps have different coaches for different stuff because a coach cannot know everything. And if, uh, if uh, a person like this exists, 
uh, exists, they may well be <laughs> a candidate for being the, the best coach in the world. But, you know, it's kind of like an ephemeral ideal at the moment. But either way, my point is, uh, I think as the sport develops, we're going to see more specialization in every facet of the sport. We're going to see uh, certain uh, people who are better at perhaps breaking down concepts in a in a plain, easy-to-understand way. Perhaps there are going to be analysts who actually train themselves, or perhaps they're going to be fighters who have an, an analytical minds. Certainly, we have examples from combat sports history of fighters who actually think about fighting in uh, the same uh, the same way, say, an analyst will. And uh, we're going to see lots of facets, uh, lots of uh, different uh, people going for different things, and it's all going to be all right. It's going to be fine. It's it's a great for development of the sport, but it is essential to sort of prepare for that by perhaps laying the groundwork. Perhaps people who who are generalists with when it comes to analysis and people who are good at communicating uh, with other people should uh, perhaps think more about um, creating more collaborative works and cooperating in the future. And I think that's that that's the the primary strength of the fight sites as a as an outlet in that we're actually a fight analysis hub we're a think tank and not just a, a hive mind as some people tend to <laughs> paint us as certainly there is a big degree of overlap in our opinions because we gravitated towards one another uh, fairly organically because we're friends and uh but yeah, uh, recognizing that there's going to be a great deal of bias in in that respect, and sort of like trying our best to curtail that their effect on our on our takes and our output is uh, certainly necessary. And uh, I think we've done a good job so far, and we're we're only going to improve because, uh, well, as we've stated many times, we're not afraid of being wrong uh, all of the time. Because look at our staff picks. Sometimes we just make a pick just so, <laughs> just so it's not homogenous. Because that's how that's how strong the, the criticism is that the fight side is a hive mind. So we just just kind of like feel the need to overshoot and overcorrect a little bit. Sometimes the things we say need not be taken as uh, at face value. Sometimes it's just uh, hypotheticals that we put out there in order to test our ideas and in order to cover as much ground as possible. That's how you learn. That's how you actually test your ideas. <laughs> you put them out. Uh, you Even if you don't have a great deal of belief in them and uh, you see whether they're wrong or not. But yeah... Uh, so, any parting thoughts? I guess you've uh, you've uh, put you've summarized your ideas fairly extensively. Perhaps something you wish to get off your chest before we wrap this up. Nope. <laughs> uh, I was just going to say your your summary there was a very polite way of saying if the ha if the heavy hands boys don't listen to everything I've told them to fix, I swear to God I'm going to corner them in a dark alleyway and kill them in front of their family. So, you know. It, it was implied, yes. It, it, there was a certain degree of implication there. <laughs> um, yeah, operator, any parting thoughts? Any? Uh, don't go to Jackson Wing. Uh, I mean, yeah, sure. Um, that, that's, uh, that, that's a good... That's a good. That's good advice at any uh, at any at any stage. At any stage, um, yeah, essentially. Yeah, be observational. Um, 
be as observational as possible, pay attention, and uh, be fearless, as Hacks was saying. Just put stuff out there, experiment, try it out. Just don't be so fearless as to, you know, actually say really, really, really dumb shit. <laughs> Just <laughs> think about it for a moment. <laughs> <laughs> be fearless after observing and coming up with some yes <laughs> observe first fearless after uh then yeah i'm good uh just like watching this sport for reasons you like to watch it and don't feel like you have to watch it to analyze it but do understand that some people do and hopefully this at least sheds clarity on why we do it yeah, essentially, like, if you understand the sport better, you gain a lot more enjoyment from it, in my opinion. If you actually understand what is happening on the screen, I think there's a, there's a, a certain degree of intellectual fulfillment that you may get out from this sport that uh, you may not necessarily uh, gain if you just watch it for the violence or just watch it for uh, for the certain figures that you like. There's much more to offer. MMA has much, much more to offer on uh, to, than simple, uh, than simple man punch man and uh, men throw men on the ground. Uh, all that, all that kind of stuff. Although certainly it's, it's it can be really fun. <laughs> Somebody get your your to Photoshop Tuman's face onto that classic, like you know, uh, that scene. MMA has layers, and he's just pointing to the you know to the board with all the different ideas and concepts on it no you, should, you know what she should do she should photoshop me uh on shrek that's, that's what i'm saying essentially mma has layers and the analysts have layers and everyone has layers fighters also have layers so uh uh <laughs> and so the princess <laughs> wasted away in the tower waiting for a prince to save her from uh, dumb shit takes on twitter <laughs> okay I, I, th no. I think i think we're done i think we're done yeah i mean we're done when i say we're done dictator dan so please refrain from further comment on this issue but but uh, actually yes i think we're, we're i think that's enough of that for today, there's uh, more where that came from. Look forward to the next episode of Tangredome. This has been Tangredome episode 19. Community, uh, <laughs> communicating fight analysis and uh, analytical concepts. With me today were Dan, Dan Albert, at typewritingda on Twitter. Check him out. He always posts interesting stuff. He always uh, makes, uh, if not Twitter threads, at least he hints at the stuff that he's writing at any moment. And uh, he usually writes really good stuff. Uh, I've yet, I'm yet to see uh, Dan write something that's, that's you know, uh, uh, shit. <laughs> he doesn't write shit. <laughs> he writes the shit. Um, and um, uh, also, I've been uh, joined by Haxerized at Haxerized on Twitter. And uh, he also has lots of uh, comments to offer on the sports, especially when fights are happening live and he watches them and then he immediately fires off the hip with uh, somehow with sniper accuracy, <laughs> despite uh, coming up with things to say off the top of his head. And uh, operator at, uh, yeah, it's at doc underscore zero p underscore uh describe the comments the, the contents of your twitter operator please <laughs> uh it's mostly weird shit posting and elaborate jokes 
I've only been on Twitter for a month, so the content may evolve. You know, you should really just follow me and see where we go on this magical journey I mean, together. You, you spent one day on Twitter, and within the first 24 hours, you already put out a tweet that reached 1,000 likes. So I'd say you have a knack for this, as you have a knack for podcasting, pretty much. I don't think this has been... Uh, uh, painful for us in any way and uh, I'm, I'm not sure if it was painful for you but I think you've done a great job so thank you for joining us and finding the time Thanks to join us and looking forward to more collaborations in the future yeah uh, you know who I am and uh, newer listeners uh, who came here uh, after after my appearance on Heavy Hands where I sabotaged the entire show and made uh, Connor wanna, wanna you know quit this job and uh pick up something more fulfilling like uh, I don't know uh, like sewing and uh, sewing that, that kind of stuff uh, <laughs> you, you may find me on at changoscan03 and uh, this is what I normally do I, I don't actually like I, I haven't made it a career out of going on other people's shows and sabotaging the entire show and taking over them although it, it, it was fun it was pretty fun and if you, you uh, if some of you still haven't listened to it, please check it out. It's a Heavy Hands episode. Uh, it's the episode on Cyril Gunn and uh, Jose Aldo, the UFC uh, 265 post-fight breakdown. Check it out. And uh, yeah, check out the fight side, subscribe to our Patreon. And uh, we put out lots of content there, alternate commentaries, as Dan has, has mentioned, uh, the various exclusive podcasts, exclusive fight breakdowns. And we also have a Discord community, which you may join for as little as five bucks per month. And you may, what you gain is a direct line of access to our staff, uh, primarily me, because I'm extremely active there. And uh, the ability to converse with other like-minded fight fans. If you're particularly tired of uh, MMA Twitter and uh, RMMA, or perhaps even uh, the MMA, in the Instagram MMA community, which is... <laughs> just a world in its unto itself so uh you may ask me questions that uh, may turn into entire uh, podcast episodes and uh, where i examine the question and try to answer the question as in depth as possible and uh, bring on guests that have uh, uh that i feel like have a particular degree of expertise that may allow them to answer the question in as exacting detail as possible and in fact operator joined us uh, for this podcast precisely because she's a discord patron so you know who knows if you have something interesting to offer uh yeah you, you may get the opportunity to express it and yeah that's uh, i'd say that's enough for the day check out the fight side check out the patron i've plugged everything check out the youtube channels uh check out uh, the, 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 the plugs 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 and that's it we're done <laughs> goodbye <laughs>